Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm, week by week, arc by arc. My name is Matt Freeman, your host and founding member of the Slaughterhouse One, an exclusive club where I hang out by myself and think about doing evil things. I'm joined as always by my potential recruit to the club, Scott Daly. Scott, tell me how you were going, going to uh, fail the test and die. Uh, well, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, Matt, all things considered. Uh, but yes, this is a podcast where you, an evil, no good, horrible, terrible worm expert, guide me, a first-time worm reader, through this Friday the 13th-esque landscape of horrors as I inspect, interpret, and yes, even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. This week, we're back to cover the second half of Arc 11 and to wrap up the eight interludes of this chapter. And uh, Dr. Matt, I need some therapy. Yes, I, I would imagine so. Um, this is a this is a big this is a very different arc. I know we say that a lot, but this is a pretty significant shift. We've seen some 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 little dribbles of horror, some tantalizing tastes of the horror genre up to this point. But uh, this week we plunge headfirst into that genre, and um, I think I think I'll just ask up front, how did that feel that 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 shift to you? Um, it, I think, I think it felt depressing, but I think it worked really well. Um, I really loved these eight chapters and I think the reason I love them is because Wild Bo handles tonal shifts really well. He is very good at establishing a tone within the very first few sentences of, of any particular chapter. So like it, there's a tonal shift into these interludes, but there's also a tonal shift between each one of them because I think each one of them is tackling like a different kind of horror. And yeah. like, so he has to set and reset tone constantly. And I think it works so well. I, I love this. I loved, um, I love that, like, we're dealing with these horror elements, but we're grounding them because like each character has, um, each slaughterhouse nine character has a character that we know fairly well interacting with them throughout this. So we understand this on a very personal level. And I think it just makes the horror like more impactful and more devastating. Yeah. Um, it, it was really hard to read some of this. Yeah. I, I think you, you just now drawn my attention to the fact that it, it also sort of ramps up where you, the, the last one, the last chapter is the one with the most macabre things happening in it. And, and I feel like that works because you, you build up to that over the course of, right. of the previous the previous ones. And like, it, it wouldn't necessarily go so well if you just cut right from, Taylor doing something to Bonesaw being Bonesaw. I think you're, um, I mean, yeah, if you look at the chap eight chapters as a whole, you're absolutely right there. Everything that happens is kind of prepping you for how much this final chapter lands and how difficult it is. And I mean, I left this arc in a funk. Um, we had a three day weekend. It was a Friday afternoon when I finished this, I was heading out of work to my amazing three day weekend and I was bummed out for <laughs> hours. Like, it was really tough to read, and I think that just speaks to the effectiveness of the writing. Yeah, no, that's. I mean, I'm I'm laughing, but but I mean, really, I'm laughing like with like the joy of effective writing, if that makes sense. Right. Um, right. Anytime, anytime something actually works, I'm I'm like, yes, this is this is what art is all about. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I know you're a fan of horror, so um, I was I was waiting to see when we got to this point. Um, how you'd react to it. And it, it sounds like you liked it. Yeah. And I think we're going to, we're going to touch on this a little bit later, but the type of horror that I really like is like horror as metaphor. 
um, like all my favorite of the recent horror films that have come out, like uh, Get Out, uh, Babadook, um, It Follows have all been like horror films that have like leaned heavily on the metaphor where it's just they're talking about another subject, but using horror as a way to do that. And I think that's what many of these chapters do uh, very effectively. And mm-hmm. and I just it, it <laughs> furthers my appreciation for it even more. Yeah, it's it's kind of taking the metaphor that the powers are often standing for, and then it's leaning on the horrific aspect of of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's let's get to discussing the the comments from last week, um, because I think uh, there was actually a lot of really interesting stuff that came out of that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So, so first, uh, as usual, Wildbo dropped by to offer his insights on the writing process for these chapters. And uh, to make a few comments and ask a few questions. And uh, regarding compartmentalization, he asks, do you guys think there's an interplay between the compartments and, say, what you said about the knife scene where Taylor lied about not planning to use the knife, that she puts things into boxes on one hand, but on the other hand, she doesn't seem too aware of the ripple effects of her actions or um, or the actual perceptions of those actions from a greater, broader perspective? That was a great question, writer of the work. <laughs> no, I, I, I liked this a lot. I like this question a lot. And that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it with you, because I do think that the way that she can't perceive consequences like ties in directly to her compartmentalization, because I think she puts these things in a box and then she like ships the box across the world and doesn't yeah. think about it. So she's not like that decision she's made the decision she puts it in a box and she doesn't worry about it and that worry extends to the consequences of it the ripple effects everything to do with that particular decision is removed from her life and she doesn't care anymore or or not even capable of caring because she doesn't think about it yeah it's almost like and and it it trips her up because it's, it's almost like she expects other people to kind of keep up with her in the sense of like she won't get why people other people can't separate the fact that she was just going to use a knife on somebody to the fact that she's offering someone tea it's like actually that's (laughs) that's pretty jarring from outside your head although i get like we understand her well enough to to get that from inside her head that's perfect sense because using the knife on somebody is sort of a theatrical power play and and she sees offering someone tea as being genuinely from her heart but it's like okay from the outside though people can't distinguish that and yeah and uh, people people don't have your compartmentalization so so it results in some pretty it results in her having a a reputation that she has obviously yeah without ever actually realizing that that reputation exists yeah right absolutely yeah yeah um and then uh well went on to talk about uh the the morality discussion and um he basically says he's always concerned when people take a firm stance on the morality of a particular choice or action in the story, and that this tends to color their view of the work and possibly causes them to resist or ignore certain characters and or miss some of the things that he's trying to represent or do with those moral choices. And I think that's really spot on for that arc in particular. Yeah, and I think the the best part about about this to me is that I think we kind of saw this happen in the Reddit thread. Um, I think there's a lot of very important and necessary conversations to have around morality but i think those are conversations that can never really have a conclusion to them because everyone approaches things from a different angle what you think is immoral um versus what i think is always going to be different and and i don't think the work is ever 
saying my perspective is right and your perspective is wrong. Um, but I think the, the, the most important thing to think of, and I, and I tried to, to talk about this anytime I got uh, pulled into a conversation about this, was that my opinion on whether this is moral or not really doesn't matter. Um, what matters is how it reflects on Taylor and, and what her opinion is and how she feels about it and how the characters around her feel about it. I think that's the important thing. Um, so that's I think what I think we tried to highlight. And that's what I think uh, where I agree with him that if you get too bogged down into the actual literal morality of something, you miss what the story is trying to do. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it, I think it's funny because I think we, you and I both got kind of drawn into some some object level moral discussions about whether something was was moral or not moral. When really, I, I think that the meta level discussion of why a certain thing is being portrayed a certain way and why the character is thinking about it that way. Are, are more interesting, uh, at least to me, to talk about. But I, I totally see why people and uh, us even get kind of drawn into arguing about like her decision to leave Thomas to die, for example, as being like, yeah, that's something you can have different differing opinions about. And frankly, there is no actual correct answer to that. So it's an interminable argument. Yeah, uh, yeah. But again, I think the important part is that if you put yourself as I think this was a morally correct decision, and I don't even understand why the character herself had the reaction to it that she did. I think if you take that stance and are so firm in that stance that you're unwilling to see what the work is trying to do, I think that's yeah. you're doing a disservice to yourself because I think I think we're definitely supposed to see this as an important moment in Taylor's development as a human being um, mm-hmm. in that that she perceived this as wrong and did it anyway. And I think that's the important part. Now we yeah. can have a whole separate conversation on was that moral or not? And we kind of did, but I don't, don't think that's the important part for the story at hand. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's something for us to keep in mind going forward, you right. know, just in case there are any morally ambiguous situations coming up in the rest of the story. I don't think there are, you know, it's, it's all pretty cut and dry from here, Scott. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah, so as always, we recommend you go check out Wabo's full comment in the Reddit thread because it's filled uh, with lots of fun information for fans, um, including a little uh, vignette where he kind of riffs on a different way that he could have gone or a different addition he could have made to uh, one of the scenes from last arc, which I was uh, absolutely tickled that, by. That was so cool to see. Yeah, it's like yeah. live writing. Right. Yeah. Uh, and we also wanted to plug Wabo's new blog post on how to be successful at web serials or even just at long-term online projects, uh, which applies to us actually. And, and we either agreed with or um, thought it was helpful um, in, in general. Yeah, I think this hit actually had a really good time for us too, because we had a long weekend. Um, I took I took most of the weekend kind of completely off. I didn't do any prep for this mm-hmm. or any and my other various projects. But um, so coming into this week, I was kind of like, ah, should we, should we push a day? And then I was reminded of <laughs> Wild Bo's words and I was like, no, let's do it. We're going to make it happen. Uh, so, so here we are. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Wild Bo. Yeah. Okay. So into the general comments from our, our wonderful, our wonderful fans, uh, Madness Factory asks, are there any characters that we have seen in the story that you suspect got powers from a vial? Well, Matt, I suspect that Shatterbird got powers from a vial. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We got that confirmed this episode. No. Um, the thing when I was sitting down trying to come up with an answer to this question, um, I, we've talked a lot about the Manton effect. And my guess would be that if if there are powers that seemingly 
are able to break the Manton effect. My guess is that has something to do with uh, science created powers. Um, okay. So I can't remember quite who we've seen with that. Um, the one I remember specifically is Narwhal, but uh, that's just because I love that name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I can't remember some of the other ones that can or can't, but um, that that's my guess for that. Okay. All right. Uh, Megafire 7 says, uh, basically points out something that um, was something that I had uh, sort of noticed, but not to the degree um, that, that is pointed out here, basically that there's a lot to be said regarding the dynamic between Lisa and Taylor in the previous arc. Um, namely that Taylor makes things extra difficult and dangerous for Lisa and the mercenaries in the course of their mission. And Lisa just continually goes along with it and covers for Taylor and offers the solution for Bryce that ends up working. And he, and then, you know, goes on to um, help, help her relationship with Brian along. So basically, uh, yeah, just Lisa is really going out of her way to um, give Taylor a lot of slack is kind of how I was seeing it in that at the time of reading. Yeah, I, I, I like this a lot. And I think I think maybe subconsciously a lot of this was put into my prediction for Lisa's trigger event. Um, we didn't specifically talk about it. But yeah, I mean, she kind of seems to handle a Taylor um, with like uh, with kid gloves. Like she's mm-hmm. almost like she's she's always going to support her and she's always like going the extra mile to make sure she's okay and happy and and this is kind of what reinforced my opinion of that she is connecting taylor to someone in her past uh, a sibling or uh, sister um and i i don't know it just i i like this a lot and that's i think it did it kind of helped reinforce why i was ready to make that bold prediction of mine that um i, I have a good feeling about but i have no idea but um yeah i mean it, we, we do see that a lot we do see her go along with 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 kind of whatever taylor wants to do is okay we're gonna do it no matter how crazy it is yeah yeah that's one of those things that like your brain kind of notices but you you realize only when you read it you know verbatim that that like oh that's what's going on yeah yep yep um so so yeah last week we had talked about the idea that um that taylor kind of puts people in a box as either being a bully or a victim and Olive had a comment that I thought was great, and, and you agreed, Scott, that uh, basically here's the comment. I don't think Charlotte flipped from victim to bully in Taylor's mind. She changed from innocent to useless bystander, a collaborator, complicit, not actively malevolent, just someone who allows bad things to happen. Um, and, and then, and then a, bit, a bit later says, this is why Taylor, Taylor hates herself so much over Dinah. She's letting bad things happen. Imagine if Taylor had kidnapped Dinah for herself. I doubt she'd be as horrified. Um, and that's uh, that's great because I think it is probably closer to something like a, a trichotomy than than a dichotomy here, where yeah, she she even seems to come down harder in a different way on these people who she perceives as the complicit bystanders. Yeah, I think you're right because because I think uh, Mr. Gladly falls under that third category as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that supports that, and I, I loved that comment because I think I think Olive's kind of right. I think if Taylor had been the one to come up with the idea to kidnap Dinah and had kidnapped her herself. She would have found a way to rationalize it um, into a point that it doesn't bother her as much. The fact that she's the one letting these things happen is really the part that bothers her the most. And that's a very uh, perceptive comment on on the nature of Taylor. So I, I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And I'll try to keep that in mind going forward, too. All right, Scott, let's move into the beat-by-beat discussion of the second part of ARC-11.
It's time to get scary. So we open with with uh, our first look inside Rachel's head. She's running through her territory with her pack of dogs, and she thinks to herself about um, how all she needs is her dogs and how she's actively trying to drive away the human helpers that have been supplied by Coil, um, because when all the humans are gone, she can finally just be herself. Yeah, uh, Matt, I love being in Rachel's head. Um, I love this so much. I love how we see her deal with her minions. Like, she treats them like they're animals. Like, she's, like, testing them and waiting for, like, giving orders and then waiting to see them misbehave, and then she's going to punish them for it. I mean, that's literally how you train a dog. Um, and I, I love that connect. That's how she approaches everything. Of course, she's she's definitely more kind to the dogs than she is the humans. Um, but it really, it, like, from the beginning of this, we get, like, a hint into, into Rachel's state of mind, and then we explore it further and forth, further as the chapter goes on. Um, and, of course, by the end, I'm heartbroken and a puddle on the floor, and it's only the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one thing um, is that Rachel's chapter is a lot sadder than I would have expected it to be before going into it. Yeah, yeah. I think the the awareness that she has of her limitations is very surprising to me. Um, yeah, I, 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 I didn't expect her to have the level of awareness that she has. Um, and that's kind of makes it even even more heartbreaking. Right. So she's still training many of these dogs that she's with. Uh, and she seems a lot looser now with juicing them with her power when they're untrained. She ends up ordering a pack of these less than perfectly trained dogs to go savage a building full of probably bad guys. Um, yeah. Did you yeah. read this like free use of her power as just like she's stronger now or just she's at a level where she's more confident in her abilities? Um, what did you read that as? Um, so I actually read it as as not caring quite so much like yeah i guess that's like, probably like, it, yeah there's no one around to put her in check and she's been told like pacify this territory and she's like oh great and and like now she just has carte blanche and she can like you know if 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 her dogs hurt someone in the past she would have to run and hide but now she can actually rely on other people coming to help her if if her dogs hurt someone so yeah yeah um which is yeah yeah, so uh, while this is all, you know, she's riding the dogs around, she's she's kind of having a great time, but but she's thinking about how nobody can possibly experience the kind of joy and belonging that she experiences when she's with her dogs, but she catches herself wondering why her human teammates are happier than her. Yeah, and this is that level of self-awareness that I'm talking about, that she fully knows that uh, these people are seemingly happier and she's kind of on the outside looking in. Um, and that was very surprising for me. I didn't expect that from her. Yeah. Yeah. And then at this point, this actually leads her into having what I think we can safely call flashback because she's thinking about how she was completely neglected by her mom as a small child, almost to the point of being a feral child and then ends up going between a couple of, of foster homes due to her violent tendencies and ending up with a really hard and strict disciplinarian foster mother. Yeah, um, who who kind of treats her like an animal, right? I mean, she kind of treats her like a dog, and I think yeah. this is there's there's a lot of animal metaphors surrounding this entire chapter. Um, who Rachel is, and and we're gonna talk about that more with Siberian. Um, but I I love this. Um, it's of course heartbreaking, but like it's like she never had a chance, you know, like like she she never had a chance to be a normal human being, power or no power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, talking about characters who 
who you're kind of made to dislike to a certain degree. I mean, we, I guess we like Rachel, but but our, our first impression of her was highly negative yeah. in, in, in the story. And, and now we've been shown what a raw deal she got. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point in the flashback, Rachel finds a stray Rolo who she keeps hidden in the backyard of the uh, foster home and feeds with scraps of her own food. And eventually she has to unchain him. And at that point he takes off and ends up falling in the pool. And then the mother, the foster mother tries to drown the dog. And Matt, Rachel trick. Yes. If the dog had died, I would have closed my browser and walked out the door. <laughs> I would not have been able to handle it. I think we already knew probably that the dog wasn't going to die. I can't remember, but um, I, I don't remember, but that, that was tough to read. Yeah. Well, don't worry, Scott. Several people died instead, so it's no. fine. Well, they're not dogs. It's okay as long it's, as they're yeah. not dogs. No, I know. Yeah. Can't have, you gotta have a few arcs between dog deaths. So Rachel triggers out of desperation to save the dog, and uh, he obviously becomes monstrous and tears up the foster family um, because he's untrained and and the situation is completely new. And um, I think we I think we did actually have some sense that this is what happened. Yeah, we um, did. But, yeah, but it's it's good to see it from her point of view and how like fearful and out of control the situation was. Like, yeah, yeah, and the the thing that really got to me is like her physical pain just remembering this like she she leaves the flashback and she's like screaming out loud until basically her throat is tired Um, and that's like how fresh this trauma is still with her like she's living with it almost every day that just thinking about it causes her physical pain um it's crazy and and as we've mentioned numerous times at this point her her power has gone ahead and made that as permanent as possible a part of her right yeah, so she she ends up having some realization that she's unhappy because the, because humans are pack animals and she has no pack of humans at least. And then she's even more miserable because of Taylor's betrayal and then also compounding that because of how she let herself down by kicking Taylor into the containment foam and betraying Taylor. That's she sees this as like a failure in her part which really eats at her. Yeah, I think it never really occurred to me just how much Taylor's betrayal would hurt Rachel. Like I, I knew she'd be mad about it, um, and like, but I guess I just like I was selling the character short to really feel like the the hurt. And I guess to continue the whole dog metaphor, um, Rachel's like this abused puppy, and she's like really quick to anger and really mistrusting of people because of the way she's been treated. And it's like she finally let someone scratch her belly, and then like got beat up as a response to it. And she's just like, just her whole world has kind of been destroyed. And I didn't think about that, and I should have. But um, I, I'm glad. I'm glad we get to see it. Yeah, yeah, that is a really sad metaphor. Thanks, God. That's- <laughs> welcome, welcome to this week's podcast because it's going to yeah. be sad a whole time. Yeah, kicking a puppy is just scratching the surface here. Uh, so as they're running through the streets, someone shoots at the dogs from a window, and uh, in in a fury, she drives her dogs into the building uh, and tells them to fetch, and uh, they come out holding people in their jaws. Um, and this is the first time we see her parse a social situation from inside her head. And it's fairly heartbreaking, as we've as we've said. She can't really guess at the guy's motives. And she continually misreads the man as he tries to, like, apologize and beg for mercy. She sees him as being aggressive and, and threatening and, and challenging her. So she has Angelica crush his legs in her mouth. Yeah, and this goes into the self-awareness thing that I didn't expect her to, like, be so aware that she was misreading people. Um, but it's like, she, it doesn't matter like aware of it or not. She can't like, she doesn't understand what to do. 
Um, yeah. because like, it's like, I, it's imagining like every single social interaction you have, you have to ignore your primary instinct. You have to ignore your first reaction and think through in detail, every single thing you're seeing and hearing. And it's like exhausting for her. And, and that's, I guess why she like pushes away from humans. Cause just doing that is exhausting. Yeah. Right. It's taking someone who's already has some kind of bad programming in terms of being, being a very angry person and then removing her ability to, to uh, understand social cues. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, so it just it it also seems like her idea of controlling territory is something like literally drive everyone out of the entire area. Yeah, yeah, and and, I, and my favorite part of it is that like she's like shocked that people don't understand how that she declared it her territory because she's just like, yeah, my dogs howled. If you hear the dogs howl, you're in my place, and yeah. and like. I got the feeling that she never told anyone that <laughs> she right. just expected people to know that if you're hearing dogs howl, this is yours. Cause I mean, that's literally one of the ways that dogs declare territory. Yeah. Um, and she just can't understand that they can't understand. And this ties into that tragic awareness. Like, yeah. like it's just, it's heartbreaking yeah. and it all ties into her trauma, right? It all like, it's just like this vicious cycle. Um, and like, it just further alienates her and further removes her from the people that uh, she would need to have any semblance of of norm normality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not only did she not have a big like Taylor esque announcement and and meeting where she declared it, she just goes around and, and mauls people. And uh... <laughs> I mean, it's probably gonna work though. To be fair, you have yeah. like ro like roaming packs of dogs at all time. People probably just gonna leave. Yeah. I'm not quite sure if that's what Coyle intended, but no, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, so in the middle of, uh, attacking these four innocent people, uh, Brandish and glory girl show up and Rachel almost immediately has the dogs charge them. And then we have a, a relatively concise action scene where Brandish, you know, it, what's interesting to me about all this is that Brandish is pretty strong and we've seen how strong glory girl is, but actually, um, there are only a couple moments even where Rachel seems to be at any risk because the dogs are so big and there's so many of them now and they're, they're actually very agile, which is something I kind of forget that they can kind of jump around almost like monkeys in, in terms of their agility. So they're like jumping up on things and then jumping down on glory, glory girl. Um, yeah. Like a so, full trained pack of these things is kind yeah. of really deadly. Right. Um, so it ends up that, uh, glory girl goes over to pick up the injured man so that they can flee with him, but somebody's standing over him and glory girl flees the instant she sees who it is. Yeah. And this is like, again, how wild Bo just manages tone and expectations so amazingly because like, this is like a textbook way to uh, send a quick image to your readers on just how threatening a person is um we know glory girl we know her relative power level and we just see her like run away the mm -hmm. second she sees this person this is our first introduction from someone from the slaughterhouse and we are on wild bow's page immediately with just how terrifying and threatening these people are it's so well done yeah so we we're introduced to the siberian um interestingly the siberian as if you know the name Somebody of one the name of an animal not the name of not a person's name, you know, definite article, Siberian, uh, is striped black with white and yellow animal eyes. 
uh, sorry, striped black and white with yellow animal eyes. <laughs> um, so Rachel at first challenges her and doesn't really seem to know who she is, uh, but the Siberian ignores her and then kills or at least blinds the dude that Rachel had already horribly maimed. Yeah, and that's another uh, stark contrasting moment, right? Um, yeah. We're about to delve into a horror film, basically. Eight independent horror films. Um, and we've seen murder in this story before. We, we still use murder very sparingly. I mean, outside of the Endbringers fight, there's only been a couple times where outright murder has happened. Um, and it's never been this like casual and unnecessary like even Bakuda for all her insane posturing like had a a, a goal <laughs> for right. doing her murder um this right. is just for the sake of it like there's there's no other reason this doesn't do anything other than she wanted to so she did it yeah yeah she's really living up to the animal name that she's trying to to cut for herself yeah so, uh, yeah, so right off the bat, Siberian is doing the dog body language communication and making herself non-threatening. And uh, Rachel doesn't really understand what she's doing, although she does understand that she feels calmed by her behavior. And finally, the Siberian speaks. Um, Rachel at first orders the dog to attack her, but they cause no reaction to her at all. So, Scott, how does this level of invulnerability feel on the scale of levels of invulnerability that we've seen up to this point. I mean, pretty high. Uh, like, like you said, we had just this little mini battle, which I think from a structural narrative standpoint served to remind us how effective and how strong Rachel's dogs are. Um, so we have that with, she's successfully battling off two pretty powerful capes and then completely ineffective against the Siberian. So we're setting the tone right now that, this is very high level of invulnerability. I, I don't even know what kind of drawback this could have, because I think every every Kate power in the story has some sort of drawback, but we haven't seen it. Yeah, I love this combo of seemingly, you know, off the charts invulnerability with complete disregard for life. It's just um, yeah, it's it's a great it's a great element to mix in horror with because there is intrinsic horror in a power like that, but you don't think about it until your attention is drawn to it. Yeah. And it's a really great introduction to the nine um, mm -hmm. when you think about it, because these are kind of people on a level that we haven't seen yet. Um, and this is like a very uh, kind of easy way to introduce us to these levels of power with just like, Oh, here's someone that's just invulnerable. It's easy to understand that power. Um, it's mm -hmm. not too complicated. We get it, but we also get how powerful it is. Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah so it, the, overall the conversation they have is great and we could go into lots of detail there but the, the overall point of it is that the siberian is recruiting rachel to the nine um and she seems to know a lot about rachel's inner life and is appealing to her desire to be uh, more an animal and less a person yeah um i we we don't have time to go as into that we could have a whole podcast talking about this conversation um but I, I love it. Um, again, Wild Bo is so good at setup in that we see her have a conversation with a normal human right before this. So we see how she normally interacts with people. And then we see this and it's a great comparison because this is totally different. Um, and, and she's aware how much easier it is to read her intentions and everything. Um, but the, the philosophy shit, as, as Rachel astutely puts it, is so great um, because we've established that it is exhausting for Rachel to try to play in this world. Um, so like, her, like the Siberian's argument makes sense. It's like, if you just like step back 
and let yourself be the animal side. It'd be so much easier for you. It'd be so much less hard. You'd get hurt less. Um, like it's it's a very convincing argument, especially after seeing Rachel like go through the stuff she has in the last few paragraphs. Yeah, yeah. The Siberian's words do seem pretty accurate considering what we just saw of Rachel's inner life and, and turmoil. And it's not that Rachel has has thought to herself like, yeah, I should just completely give up on humanity and and become a monster. But you see how that sort of feels like a logical continuation of the thoughts that she was indeed having. Yeah. So this before she leaves, the Siberian gives her two gifts. The first is waiting for her back at her den, and the second is letting her be the only person to hear her speak and live. Yeah, I actually give that gift to a lot of people. So mm -hmm. um, everyone listening, I'm letting you live. Yeah. The thing about well, that is someone has heard both of us talk and died before. So, well, I mean, I'm not saying it's correlation, but... <laughs> can, can see that uh, this arc has put you in a dark place. But... <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair. So uh, Rachel rushes back to her den to make sure everything's okay and finds that her human helpers are injured, but uh, apparently not killed that we that we see anyway. And then inside uh, the a box left by Siberian is a wolf pup, and Rachel finds that the pup drinks up her power easily and transforms more quickly. Yeah, and I love I love how this metaphor works for everything we've been talking about because mm -hmm. like like a dog is just a domesticated wolf, like it's bred to be complacent, compliant. Um, when Rachel uses her powers on a dog, it's harder, it's more painful, it doesn't work as easily. Just like her being uh, in society, being with humans, that's harder, it's more painful for him. Um, uh, the wolf, on the other hand, is, is free-roaming, it's easier, her powers work better on it. Um, being a wolf is just easier for her than being a dog, and that works into how her powers work. I, I love that imagery, it's so good. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, like... I, I, at the end of every chapter, I think I'm going to try to guess whether I think this recruitment is going to work on the people. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's going to be working on this on uh, for Rachel. I mean, it certainly is a convincing argument for her, but but I really do think Rachel is not the lone wolf that she thinks she are. Rachel Rachel is a dog, and it, it is harder for her to live in this world with humans. Um, it, it it is really hard, but I think she is a pack animal, and she needs to be with her pack. And Taylor is part of that pack and she needs to be in that. And as much as she thinks that it's easier to get out of that, it's something she needs. Like there's a reason why she's with the undersiders. Like she feels a need to be part of something like that. And I think that's going to win over eventually. Yeah. Without commenting on, on what choice she actually makes, it's, it's obvious that she is not actually fulfilled by being the alpha of a dog pack. She needs to be a member of a human pack to, to, have right. anything like it because she talks about how how great it was that that really brief amount of connection that she actually had with taylor where where things felt felt right and it was because taylor was engaging with her you know in, in a way that made sense to her right and, and we're seeing her through the beginning of the chapter be that lone wolf kind of she's not around other people she's by herself and even in that moment she wonders why are these other people happier than me so right. like it, it's not fully fulfilling for herself um, yeah. And I think she's going to take a little while to realize that. I think she might play on the wolf side of things a little bit, um, but I think she's going to eventually come back to that truth. Um, and I think it's going to be cool to see. Yeah. And in, in the end, she orders her people not to tell Coyle about this, which I think is supposed to be a foreboding conclusion. Yeah, I think so. And I think that kind of ties into what I said, that I think she's going to be dabbling 
with the wolf side for a bit. Um, and I'm interested to see how that shakes out, but, um, I, I th- I'm confident in my prediction for the end. Um, but yeah. I, man, I loved this chapter. Like what a way to start these, these interludes. Um, it, it's sad. Um, but like, it just it thematically just works. Like, I love it. I love, yeah. I love the wolf imagery. Like I could not get over how amazing that was. Yeah. So as we move into the next chapter at the, at the risk of being repetitive, it, it is amazing to me how each of these chapters is really its own little short story vignette with its own its own tone, its own flow, its own unique unique character with a unique piece of of turmoil that's driving them. Um, you know, they're not all capes. They're not all good guys. Um, they're not even all recruits, actually, that, that we get the point of view from. So uh, it's just... Um, as we move forward, I'm obviously going to be mentioning that fact again because our yeah. next our next character is not a cape, um, and and I, I refer to this as the suspense chapter because I think that is the overriding uh, tone uh, for this for this whole chapter is is nail biting suspense. I think the first time I read this, I just like plowed through it because I had to know how it ended up because it was so intense. Yeah, so you've got... I think I think me as well. I think you can look at how many tweets I make <laughs> on a particular <laughs> chapter as my first read through how intently I was reading versus stepping back and, and commenting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we've got poor, poor Theo, Kaiser's son, is sitting in terror in front of his TV. And Jack Slash, a.k.a. Johnny Depp, is playing with Aster. Um, and he gets tired of that and he orders Theo to change the baby's diaper and then moves on to toying with Theo. Yeah, so I, I saw Pirates 5 this weekend, um, and and I'm glad I did, because it made me hate Johnny Depp even more, so, so I hate this guy so much. Um, but I really do love how this chapter opens up. Um, I love, like, it starts with him, like, gripping the remote, staring at the TV, and then the reveal that the TV's been off the whole time, and then this, like, the, the detail of, like, how he's noticing that like the, the little details of the TV because he's just staring at it so intently. I just love it all. And, and you're absolutely right that like we set tone here immediately. We like this is suspense. This is um, fear and we're in it immediately. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh, the, the Jack kind of goes all over the place with his, with his rambling. Um, at one point he reminisces about meeting Kaiser back in the day. Yeah, that was uh, interesting because <laughs> he's like, he looked at me in the eyes, so I liked him. And then also we like were co- contracted by someone to kill people and then we killed the people that contracted us. It was a good, it was a good weekend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it, Jack is very interesting. Um, Fucking and, Johnny and, Depp. Yeah. So he, he I mean, he, he's he's int- he's not as interesting as he thinks he is, which I think is one thing that's interesting about him, like because he's totally he's very much prone to these pontificating you know uh um, monologues essentially at a captive audience like it's kind of interesting to get into his head because he has an interesting villain mentality but also you get the sense that he his ego is enormous like so like the 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 quote that i'm going to read shows both of those things um where he says uh but my interest is in the design of people, what makes them tick, what holds them together. All too often, it's one little thing. In architecture, they call it a keystone. 
the one stone that keeps the entire arch from collapsing, the weak point. And I'm very, very good at finding those weak points. Can you guess what I'm talking about here? Why I'm in this apartment? So <laughs> it, 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 it works both to show his like grandiosity and also just is terrifying at the same time. Yeah, but it's also, I think you're absolutely right that it's not as clever and wise as he thinks it is. Because it's like, yeah, no shit killing a mother's baby is going to, like, break her. Like, that's right. not, like, rocket science. Like, <laughs> the keystone in architecture is not, like, a little hidden secret in architecture. Like, it's not, like, he's, you're right, he doesn't come, he's not as smart as he comes off. Yeah, yeah. So he shows, he shows uh, Theo that Oni Lee is chilling in the bathtub because he failed Jack's nomination. Yeah, and I, I like this because I had completely forgotten that Oni Lee was a person that existed in the story. Because <laughs> after that last fight, he just kind of disappeared. Um, but again, we're using, like, it's so efficient how we're using this because we've seen Oni Lee before. We've seen him fight before. We've seen how annoying and effective he is. And Jack beat him, and he's really not even harmed, right? It specifically said he doesn't have a scratch on him. So, mm -hmm. like, we're establishing immediately Jack's relative power um, to to everything we've seen. And it's like, oh, OK, so this guy is not just a posturing asshole. He's actually like super powerful at what he does. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm just dropping various various ideas here because remember back when they were discussing Jack in the first place, Guru basically said his power is not all that. I think I think was the quote. Um, and and it, it doesn't seem off the off the bat why Jack's power would would be so much better than Oni Lee's. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, and I think may, maybe, you know, the first thing that jumps to mind is like, yeah, but it's possible to be really, really good with a very simple power. Um, and right. And we've also seen how how effective it is to um, for your enemies to not have a full understanding of your power. So it, yeah. it's very possible that that they just don't fully understand what all his power entails. So, that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's very interesting. And I think also Brian's comment was in relation to the fact that he's going to end the world. So maybe, yeah, maybe in relation to world ending capability, it doesn't seem all that. But also Brian's just kind of a kind of a cocky person sometimes. So, yeah, no, your your point is, is well taken that that in context, he wasn't saying that Jack has a weak power. That's that's uh, that's you're, you're right. You're right about that. Um, yeah, so his explanation for why he killed Oni Lee is that he he found Oni Lee to be uh, essentially a blank slate, a tabula rasa, a piece of paper with nothing on it, a formatted computer, a tombstone without a name on it. Um, and, and basically the point is that when Oni Lee teleports, he kind of, his mind kind of gets left behind or something in his mind does and he deteriorates mentally. So Oni Lee isn't really a whole person in some sense. So that was why he yeah. was like he lost interest in Oni Lee as a candidate when he realized that. I love I love the detail here. I love the drawbacks that all these powers have. Um, I think it just adds a level of realism to this very uh, out there story. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that helps ground it a little bit. Um, and, and again, this does double duty. It, it serves to define more about Jack that that he doesn't care about this person because he's not interesting to him. Right. Yeah. And and we'll see. I, I'm not sure if we can say that Theo is being clever when he with what he says later but it certainly it certainly does play to that uh to that fact about jack yeah so jack tells him uh, at this point that the plan is to wait for purity to come home and then kill theo and the baby when she walks through the door um and which obviously kind of breaks theo a bit and he starts crying 
And he, he eventually asks Theo who he wanted to be. And Theo says he wanted to be a superhero, even though he doesn't have any powers yet. Um, and then some of my favorite lines, um, Jack asks, and what would, you, what would you do to people like me then? And then a bit later, Theo, Theo swallowed the lump in his throat. People like you, I'd kill, sir. I love the sir at the end, because he's supposed to say sir to, to people. Yeah. Um, I, I love... I love this idea. I, I I feel like a brokered record sometimes, but like we talk about trauma so much and how people react to trauma. And Theo is coming to trauma from such a different place because you're right. He hasn't had a trigger event. He's not, uh, he's a second generation. So when he will have his trigger event, it'll probably be much minor. Um, I would be kind of surprised it isn't happening like right as we speak. Um, and it might be on some level. We just don't know yet, but, um, how he responds to this is so different, like than from what we've seen. Um, and, and actually, like I like learning that he's only he's fifteen. Um, I thought he was younger than that. I always imagined him like eleven or twelve for some reason. Mm-hmm. But I think that just plays into like it, the fact that he's Taylor's age. I think that plays into like how much more grown up Taylor seems because of her powers. Um, and uh, Theo's kind of been relatively sheltered. So he seems younger. I don't know. Um, yeah. But I just love that he's going through this trauma and he finds his strength in it. And you're right. He might just be posturing to, to Jack to um, make him seem more interested in him. So he spares him. I don't think he, that's going through his head. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I just really think like he's backed in this corner and this moment of, of, of really of fear and suspense and trauma. He finds strength. And I love that. I love and I don't think that's something we've necessarily seen as implicitly in this story so far um but i just i just love it and of course yeah. jack now immediately must destroy that because that's right horrible yeah and this is one of the very few unpowered um pov characters that we've had in the story but you know yeah. for, for, i i can't think of many i think of danny i'm sure there are others i'm really not sure actually maybe there aren't others um i think danny's um, it so far yeah and 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 we're seeing this this real like he's not even he's not even mouthing off to jack it's it's just a a calm bravery in the face of what he fully expects to be his imminent death yeah um and and it's it's really nice to see actually um in, in this story that is so full of um horror basically <laughs> yeah and it makes you wonder if the act of having powers robs you of this in some way. Um, because you're right. He is a character who, who at this point is not a Cape. Um, he does not have powers that we know of. So um, it's interesting that we see this, this very implicit like bravery and heroism from a person who doesn't even have powers yet. Um, so yeah, that's, I, I like it a lot. Yeah. So, so as you said, um, this manages to, pique Jack's curiosity enough that Jack changes his mind about killing everyone and he says he wants to play a different game now. He's going to give Theo two years to somehow get powers and then train them up and then at the end of two years either Theo has to come and kill Jack or Jack will kill a thousand people ending with Theo himself. Yeah, and this is why there are no just pure heroes in this world because <laughs> shit like this. Uh, I hope Theo really becomes a badass superhero. Like I want that for him so much. Um, but like this level of like mental manipulation 
it just feels like it might be just too much for this poor kid to take. Like, this is like a, a Saving Private Ryan level of burden you're shouldering on a 15-year-old kid that you just, like, were about to kill. Um, and I really wouldn't blame Theo if he spends the entirety of his next two years, like, in a constant state of worry and fear and self-doubt and, like, this this immense amount of pressure that's just been put on this kid's shoulders. I can't I can't imagine it. Yeah, right. It's it's like Jack's certainly going to succeed in messing him up regardless of what happens. Right. So as Jack leaves, uh, he grabs Oni Lee, uh, who he refers to as a treat for a teammate, uh, which I love because at this point we might assume he means the Siberian, uh, but later we see which teammate it is that he actually gives Oni Lee to, and uh, that, that teammate does something useful with him. <laughs> it's funny that I read that was for Siberian as well, maybe just because... That was the only other one I'd seen at this point. But yeah, the, the, the actual use for him is, is more horrifying than I would have ever, ever come up with on my own. Yeah. <laughs> so they run into Purity in the hallways on the way out. Uh, but Jack is able to escape because he points out that she's weakened by the low sunlight and that he knows that she's weakened. And um, Theo also kind of tells her to, to he kind of waves her off and uh, he, he tells her to train Theo. I wonder, and I'm just thinking of this now, I wonder if this is like a hint towards a, an additional power that Jack has that maybe expands him beyond the level of, of Brian's casual dismissal of his power. Um, because it is very interesting that he, he has this idea uh, of of Purity's power in detail and where that comes from. Um, and I know you can't answer that at all, but but does this does this conflict with what we understood Purity's power was before? Uh, am, um, I, am I not just not understand? Because I thought like her power was like emotional kind of based. Like she thought of her kid to fly and like summoned happy thoughts and like summoned and, and like bad thoughts seemed to power her in a different way. I thought that's what that was, but um, maybe I was. I mean, maybe that wasn't just the full story. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have any like sense of the can- canonical answer to this. I think maybe she she either needs or or it's better if she has some kind of emotional impetus to, to activate her power. But I think we saw before that she does um, benefit from having like light exposure. Like when she goes to Kaiser's office in his office building, he like turns up the lights for her and then she thanks him because, and she like feels herself recharging from, from the lights. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I just totally forgot about that. Yeah. Well, that was like a month ago or more. So yeah, (laughs) I think it was more yeah all right um yeah so we're leaving that um meadow of sunshine and rainbows and moving on to um burn scar viciously attacking uh uh fault lions club palanquin palanquin never said that word out loud yeah um i don't know and so so burn scar is a is a ruthless pyrokinetic who seems to be immune to fire and can shoot fire everywhere fairly freely and can teleport through fire, which ends up being pretty terrifying. Um, yeah, that's nuts. Like as, as the fire progresses, she covers more of the battlefield with fire, which allows her to move, move around even more. Um, so anyway, it takes some time for us to realize that the POV in this chapter is L aka labyrinth. Yeah. I really like that detail. I'm glad you, you, uh, pull that out too um because like the chapter starts off with spitfire 
like that's the first sentence you hear about what Spitfire is doing. So you kind of immediately assume that they're the point of view character. And especially as they're fighting Burnscar, because it's this natural, okay, they're two fire-based capes that are uh, facing off against each other. Um, and then it's that slow shift to realize that, that it's L. And I think that fits like with her state of mind and it, it works into her state of mind because things are a little bit more abstract here. There's a little bit um, more broad and less clear. Um, and that really fits into her state of mind. And I think that's a really cool way to, of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And in addition to that, um, as we, as we move through her, her mind, her perceptions, we get more insight into the nature of her power, which is something you'd been interested in for some time. Um, so basically she sees into these other worlds, which she thinks of as pocket worlds and she can draw, she can sort of draw from them into this world. So in this particular case, she wants to deal with the fire that Burnsar is creating. So she finds a worn statue of a woman holding an urn and draws the statue into this world. And it's very slow right now because her power isn't at its best, which is essentially because she is relatively lucid right now. Um, she somehow modifies the statue in a way that we don't really understand, but we kind of hand wave really understand to do what she needs it to do. She puts some kind of math puzzle in it that will lead it to gush out water when it's triggered. And then she manages to tell Shamrock how to activate it after it gets broken in the fighting. Um, and we finally kind of, I think we may have gotten a, a hint of what Shamrock could do before. But anyway, Shamrock is a telekinetic and clairvoyant whose power is pretty hard in practice to distinguish from just being really lucky. Yeah. Um, so I love this. <laughs> I think Labyrinth is fascinating. Um, and I think like, first of all, I love the, the, the power and how powerful it is, but how it has these, again, these clearly set up boundaries and limitations. It doesn't seem like she can just create something out of thin air. Like she has to go to these pocket dimensions that like she says she's built, but it's like she has to build them in her mind first and then, and only then can she bring them into our world. Um, I, I really like that detail. Um, I also like, like how her power is limited by how long she's been in an area. So if she's only been somewhere, um, for a short amount of time, she can only affect a, a little bit around her. Um, that makes you, me kind of wonder like how long she was in the mall for, um, before they started doing their thing. Cause like it said, she was home for two hours and she could only reach her room and the couple rooms outside of it. So it seems like she yeah. was posting up in the mall for a while. That's um, interesting. Yeah. But also she was having a bad day then, which yeah. meant she was more powerful. So Yeah, and I, that's and that's what I love. I love the thematic weight of this because her power isn't at its best when she's having a good day mentally. Um and so the closer she is to a fun fully functioning human being, the less effective she is as a cape. And that goes back to our recurring theme that we've talked about about um that these powers are linked to the broken parts of ourselves and um and as as she's more broken she's better at her cape stuff as she's less broken as she's more human she's worse at it and i think that just ties in so thematically i love it um it's horribly depressing but, but i like it yeah yeah right um yeah so so burnscar makes her way to where Elle is and and into her room and it's it's actually i, I I don't remember how I reacted to this the first time. I'm going I'm to ask how you did, but like she's been so vicious and, and murderous and, and almost kills, you know, several of fault lines crew several times. She's not holding back at all. And then when she gets to Elle's room, she's, she's like, I'm, I'm sorry about your friends. I didn't come here planning to do that. It's just, you know, 
yeah it, it's a very jarring shift and it's supposed to be um yeah, yeah. i was i was kind of like what's going on here um and and right. because you immediately think that she's there to recruit l which turns out not to be true um so you're kind of prepping for the worst um and this is not what i expected at all i think it's very effective right so so it turns out that burn scar is another cape very much like l actually um whose power has has ruined ruined her in some way um or so i think we're led to assume at least in that the more she uses it, the less she cares about hurting people, which leads her to use it more, which creates a cycle of her doing a lot of really horrible things. Um, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It links up to Labyrinth in such a, a really perfect way, but almost kind of foils of each other. Um, like that uh, they, they, they're sources of the power kind of, and, and how it affects them mentally is similar, but how they react to it is very different. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, yeah. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. I, I think that's highlighted um, where, you know, what, what, what Elle actually thinks about this, where she, she's, she thinks to herself, um, and you retreat into that state to avoid facing the guilt over the things you've done. You use it to hide from your own fears. If I blame you for anything, it's for that. Yeah, um, and I, I really think that's the most important thing about this interaction, and it kind of distills the the main thesis of Worm, or one of the main theses of Worm so far, is that, you know, we talked last week about fault, and whose fault it is for a certain thing. It's definitely not Burnscar's fault that her power causes her to behave that way, but she does choose to use it as an escape, as a way of not dealing with her past mistakes, not dealing with her guilt, it's that choice that makes her bad, and it's that choice that divides her from Elle. And I think it's that choice that's supposed to remind us of our girl Taylor and the, the choices and the decisions she makes. So, uh, and, and ha- like, who's at fault, who's not at fault, but it, it's the choices you make knowing that information that are important. Yeah, that, that's really, really interesting because I don't think Burns Carr specifically uses the word escape here, um, but... Taylor specifically used the word escape and that's very much Mm -hmm. similar to what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a very tragic uh, kind of unexpectedly tragic and sad moment. And not least because Burns car has actually come to L in hopes um, of finding some kind of moment of compassion and connection with a human being. And she get, and then she actually is just reminded that she never really had that with L or maybe with anyone in the first place. And Rather than then becoming angry about it and going on another rampage, she just acts really heartbroken and leaves without making a fuss. Yeah, it is really sad and, and tragic. And I think Burnscar is very different from the members of the Nine that we've seen so far and uh, the ones that we're going to continue to see in this chapter. Um, she's the only one that on the surface doesn't seem to like revel in this destruction and death. Um, it, she like She's not she's conflicted in a way that like Siberian and Jack have not been. Um, and the other ones we talk to see later are not. Um, but that almost the, the, the story is almost telling us that that doesn't matter. Um, like, cause she's still a part of this group. Like she's conflicted about what she's doing, but she's doing it anyway. So it's like, it's the actions that really define who you are as a person. Um, and, and, and again, that goes back to what L points out about her that, um, it, it's it's retreating into this because it makes you feel better because um, it's less painful um, it's less guilt ridden and I think that's the important part of it 
Um, she's yeah. really a fascinating character. I'm super into her. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really tempting from this little tiny subsection of the scene to view her as as a tragic figure, a figure of sympathy. Um, but I, I think, like you just said, like she's a member of the Slaughterhouse Nine, which are, you know, the worst people, and probably has an enormous kill count, although yeah. we don't know what it is. So it's like, um, we can't we can't literally cut her too much slack based on the fact that she seems sad in this in this moment. Yeah, I mean, and again, it, it certainly is tragic, and I'm not gonna I, I, putting fault on that. Like you were, you were cursed with this power that makes you depressed when you don't use it, but when you do use it, makes you want to hurt more people, and that's awful and terrible. But um, you don't have to be in the slaughterhouse nine. That's a decision that she made, um, and, and Labyrinth even kind of calls her out on that. Says you can go to the birdcage, um, you can run away, and she's like, no, they'll find me. Um, so I can't do that, and it's like. There's very, there's very kind of under the surface hinting that she enjoys it more than she's letting on. Um, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Cause, I mean, and, and she was in an asylum where presumably she was not a risk to people. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that was intolerable to her. Yeah. So. And I do like how Labyrinth does serve as the, the, the opposite of this kind of. Um, I think it's very telling that Labyrinth calls her good days. Um, the ones when she's the most lucid and the weakest with her powers. And it kind of seems like she she's like she's aware that she has this great power, but she wishes that she could be more normal, um, whereas Burnscar kind of feels the opposite. Yeah, no, that's true. And I mean, we never said it out loud just now, but but that they, they were both in the same asylum because they do both have these yeah. somewhat similar mental issues that accompany their powers. So. Yeah, but we see here the different choices you yeah. can make in right, that. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that's that's very important and also very sad. But uh, yeah. Ella's better. Yes. All right. Uh, so we'll move from there to our next pairing, where our our good friend Colin is sitting at his computer, and he hears a tap tap tapping. Yeah, I mean this is classic like horror imagery here um like someone hanging out by themselves and they hear this subtle tapping um and then the, the thing comes out of the vent like this is out of all the ones we've seen so far this is the one that most embraces the horror aspect of it um which of course means it's like my favorite so far because i love the, the this the body horror in this uh, so yeah cool. yeah the description of of mannequin's body is something i i kind of want to study for how unnerving it is um in, in the sense that it gives you of this like unnatural creature so so all coil hat uh, sorry spell similar <laughs> all colin has is is the uh, pocket knife sized model of his nano knife which is you know pretty much a, a pretty dinky weapon in this situation <laughs> and mannequin is generally just like a living weapon um and then he just kind of toys with Colin for a while, taking advantage of his superior strength, durability, weapons, and inhuman flexibility to just run circles around him. Yeah, and I love, I love how Wild Bo writes this. I really do, because there's it's like, like there's moments that are just like so specifically weird and like otherworldly, and just like how he moves, and it's just like skin crawling, and then like you attach the fact that he's like silent and he has no eyes and he has no mouth. And it's just like, it's so visceral and you can just see it like 
if Worm ever gets made into any kind of visual medium, and I, and I hope it, it does one day, um, I, I can see this already. And it, I just loved it. Yeah. So um, Dragon is actually talking to Colin on the, you know, through his computer system as this is all happening. And uh, also kind of amplifying how dire things uh, seem. And we get the, the flavor, the background that uh, Mannequin, formerly Alan Graham, that's how I'm going to say it, was a tinker specializing in biospheres and um, efficiency, basically solving world hunger was among his projects until the Seamurg killed his family and he went mad. And now his prey of choice is tinkers who, like his former self, tried to make the world better. And Scott, this is also why we can't have nice things. Yeah, we just nice things are not allowed in this world. That's um, correct. I, I love how it, it is kind of on the nose, and Dragon specifically mentions it, but that he literally sealed himself off from the world. Um, this is great. It's classic like horror origin story type stuff. Um, but I also really like how it how it ties back to Colin and and his view on things, um, especially mm. with how he reacts to this, which we're going to get to in a sec. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So one of my favorite bits of this whole arc is Colin's complete freak out at the implication. The, the moment he realizes the mannequin has chosen him as a as a recruit because he thinks they're similar. I particularly like the read that the uh, audiobook reader um, does on this on this particular section where where Colin, Colin's desperate incredulity kind of comes across where he's like, I, I can't believe you would think that. But it's like, who are you trying to convince Colin? Yeah, I, I, I love this too. You're absolutely right. Um, I, I think it's like this moment of realization for Colin. And I think, you know, he survives this encounter barely. I don't know if he's going to survive later encounters, but I think this is a, a real wake up call for him. And I think this, if anything's going to set him back on the right path, um, this is it because there's this, that, that, that level of implicit like implication that if you're chosen by them, you you are messed up on some level is just so wonderful and like it didn't even occur to me until this point that that was true like i wasn't thinking through that until you see colin's reaction you're like oh yeah that really does say something about who you are as a person um and his way of react oh it's perfect yeah so colin does go a bit too far in his refusal and ends up insulting mannequin's family and and then mannequin physically basically mutilates him yeah i i love i love that in his head colin's doing this because he knows he's gonna die so he's gonna die fighting but in reality i think that under the surface it's because he's lashing out because he's going crazy at this implication um and he just can't even control himself anymore but he's still trying to rationalize it to himself but um it's just really great yeah um so so he wakes up and dragon has been working to put him back together and, and save his life and has basically rebuilt him with artificial parts and uh she intends to keep working on him and eventually maybe give him a working eye and make him even more of a cyborg um which which they they kind of talk about it and and you realize at that point that maybe mannequin slicing him up wasn't just uh out of out of anger at him talking smack about his dead family but may have been a strategic choice to literally make Colin more like him, like physically. Yeah, yeah. So at the end, uh, we get it, we get the sense that uh, Dragon is going to confess her true nature to Colin. 
Yeah, I like this a lot, too, because we've seen from Dragon's point of view, and, and from Dragon's point of view, there was this, like, she was aware that Colin had this attraction toward her, um, and, and maybe she, like, slightly reciprocated it, but um, we weren't totally sure. And here we see Dragon, like, lose her shit over Colin almost dying. Right. Um, like, she screams, I need you. And I think you can read this two ways. You can read it, um, like you're the only one I think can help me escape my limitations. But I also think she totally wants to like robo bang him. So I think, I think it's both. I think it, it, in that moment it can be both. And yeah. I think there, there is a, there is a level of herself that, that really likes Colin um, more than just as a tool for what she wants to accomplish. Right. And and I think, you know, as, as hard as we may have been on, on dragon in the past, like, I think you, you really do like her in this chapter. Yeah, um, I mean, like, she's kind of like it, it, to to fall into the horror um, elements. She's the the girlfriend on the phone while horrible things are happening to the boyfriend. Like, I mean, that that happens. I think in Friday the Thirteenth, where where John no not Friday the 13th, sorry Nightmare on Elm Street where where Johnny Depp is a uh, is dying in bed while his girlfriend's trying to call him on the phone. So this is tying into a lot of uh, used horror elements, and it, you really do like her because she's kind of powerless to do anything in this moment. Um, yeah. but she's like freaking out about it. Yeah. And, and it seems genuine and that makes you kind of trust her a bit more. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So we move on to our next, our next, uh, pairing. We have, um, nice all around nice guy, hook wolf chaining, uh, training his chosen. So if, if we recall, he's kind of formed his splinter group off of what was formerly empire 88. And he's got a few of the capes from that group with him. Um, and he's basically training a bunch of non-powered trainees um, and filtering them for killer instinct. Um, so we spend a passing moment noting that Storm Tiger and Cricket are still painfully and laboriously recovering from the horrible, horrible wounds that they suffered at the hands of Gru and Skitter. Yeah, I think this is the, like one of the first times that I don't, I don't really feel bad for anyone <laughs> in this situation. Like, I, fuck all these guys. They're all terrible. I hate them all. Yeah. No, I just thought it was funny that, like, certainly Taylor hasn't thought twice about the horrible wounds that she gave these people. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, so uh, so he ends up picking out a candidate uh, from among the masses who he identifies as being good and, and asks and, you know, gets, gets the guy to spar with Finya. Um, but then he calls an end to the fight when it looks like the guy might actually win. And uh, they're going to set up another sparring match between a couple of people. But then Cricket notices something before she can really give a good warning. Uh, Shatterbird's attack occurs and all the glass in the area. Um, it doesn't just shatter. It like explodes um, and it just kills tons of people in the room and horribly maims many more. Like it, it, I think it may even say like anyone wearing glasses is just dead. Um, and and Hulk, Hulk is is injured, of course, but he quickly kind of draws in his flesh and starts transforming into his chainsaw storm form. Yeah. This is when it like occurred to me just how much glass we have around us all the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here now. I have two monitors in front of me. I have my cell phone here. I have two windows here. Like I would be so dead. Um, yeah. but like, so glass magneto is like super powerful, especially yeah. in a city that's surrounded by glass. Right. If anything, this is one of those things that, that makes you realize that, if Magneto is as powerful as Magneto is supposed to be, then 
he's never being portrayed correctly because Magneto should be able to do stuff like this, but just never does for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he heads out with uh, with Cricket to face Shatterbird, um, and we see Shatterbird in in person. I, I love her costume here because she's basically clothed in and has like a, a cape of um, shards of glass that she's controlling telekinetically. Yeah, and it makes her be able to float. It's just really cool. I love it. Yeah. Um, I, I, this is another thing that I think would work really well in a visual medium. Medium like seeing this glass, it'd be expensive to do, but like seeing it like shimmer and kind of move, and I, I think it'd be awesome. Yeah. So they fight with Shatterbird using her range and strength to keep him battered and pinned down, but not able to or really wanting to exceed his durability. And she goads him as as they fight, insinuating that she understands him and that she can give him what he wants. Uh, she says that he's a born warrior, someone she identifies with. And uh, he admits to himself that he feels that that's fairly accurate, um, that, that he does feel like a warrior. And she says that she knows he wants to bring her out uh, about some form of Ragnarok. And he can only do that really with the nine. Um, and in the course of the fight, happens to mention that her power was bought yeah i think that's the first the first confirmation we've had at a a vile cape right Mm -hmm. which is what i'm calling them until i have something better i guess cauldron works i don't know um matt this is probably my my least favorite of these interludes Mm -hmm. um and i think really all it has to do is like my indifference towards Hook, hook wolf as a character i don't really give a shit about him um and this whole i consider myself a warrior so my only place in life is to be warring all the time that just doesn't really do it for me i don't care about it um and his whole posturing about like that quote he says people with a tendency for violence and a thirst for blood just don't thrive like that's total bullshit (laughs) like literally the city is surrounded by people who are thriving and who have a thirst for blood like i just like and i understand a lot of this is, I think, is Wild, but intentionally Wild Bow intentionally doing this stuff to get it like that. That Hook Wolf has this like "woe is me" mindset, um, but I just didn't really find it that engaging. Um, I didn't really care about these characters as much as I cared about anything else in the arc. So I don't know. I mean, I'm probably just being too hard, but uh, this was I didn't like this one as much. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I don't know if you're being hard. Like I, I, I definitely found myself kind of hoping that Shatterbird just killed him. Because <laughs> um, I mean, we already really don't like him at all, um, and and it's it's not like this is one of those chapters where, in the beginning of the chapter, you you're given some information about Hook Wolf that you didn't have previously, and you're like, oh, he's actually just misunderstood. It's like no, he's actually just as much a piece of garbage as we thought. And yeah, and and I want to make sure that that it's not that just that I don't like him as a person. I don't think he's interesting as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really like, I, I, I always try to separate those two things. Like we talked about this before, how if a character is a shitty person, but an interesting character, then you can find them engaging and like them, even if you don't like them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't either with this character. I, I think he's a shitty person and I don't care about him. So yeah. uh, I think that's, that's my, and that could be my problem. I don't know, but that was just my reaction to, to this whole art, uh, chapter. I think it's accurate to say that he's the least complex in terms of his inner life. Um, and I think that is, I don't know. I feel like that's by design. That's just, I, I think, I think it is too. And that's why, that's why I'm not going to, that's why I've, I've tried not to call out the writing here. Um, I, I think 
everything that I dislike about him on a character level is stuff that Wild was trying to do. Um, it just it just resulted in a less engaging chapter for me. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I mean, I I uh, I, I essentially I essentially agree. You know, uh, I think Shatterbird is more interesting than Hookwolf here. Absolutely, that was that, yeah. I mean that was the saving grace of the chapter for me is that I was really interested in her, um, and I, I I'm assuming we're gonna get to see more of her. Um, because they're going to have to fight them all. But um, yeah. I, I think she's really cool. Yeah. So so anyway, um, Cricket kind of can cancel out her power, but not really. And then Shatterbird uses a little bit of strategy to slash Cricket's throat when she's not paying attention. And then Storm Tiger knocks her out of the sky with his wind uh, and lets Hookwolf get close enough to step on her with his blade claw foot. But she still doesn't really seem cowed, which I think is interesting. Like He's clearly injured her badly, and she's just continuing to you know, like, uh, agitate. Um, yeah, it's almost as if she's crazy. Yeah. Almost as if she's, <laughs> yeah. Complete psycho member of the nine. Um, so he, she leaves, or he kind of lets her leave actually. Um, and he decides he's going to go through with the nine's test, but then he'll betray them later, which is, uh, I mean, can you search back and remember if you bought this the first time you read it? Cause I don't buy it. Um, I don't think he's going to betray anyone. I think out of any of the characters we've seen thus far, he's the most likely to end up actually joining the nine. Um, but I doubt the betrayal is going to happen. I, I feel like maybe one of the reason why you found him uninteresting is that I think he is just pretty stupid. Like, he he's a stupid person who got a, a, a really strong like breaker slash brute power that that most mm-hmm. like almost no one can really um t- take on you know one on one and it just it, it's given him a disproportionate level of power and influence and that's why he's in charge of this this gang um but he he's it's it's not like Kaiser where he's keeping the gang together out of his wiliness and ability to play people off each other he's he's just a brute and uh uh yeah. he's the most he does it does seem like he would be easily suckered into something and any plans he has for like manipulating anyone sound pretty far-fetched i agree okay cool um so we move to the next chapter which is one of the more fun ones for a variety of reasons i love so much about how this is done so many different <laughs> facets of how it yeah i don't know yeah this is the so that was basically the end of me being negative about <laughs> this arc for the rest of it um because every chapter from here on out is incredible i love this one so much um it's so great so yeah so among among the many things i love about this we first see Dinah's power from inside her head uh, as she glimpses tens of trillions of universes in a shuffling mosaic. And uh, she notices, emerging from the pattern, that it looks like most of the near futures are ending up with her dead, in short order. Um, so she goes into the other room and uh, was still coil about it. Yeah, and this is, uh, from here on out, I just get increasingly depressed. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is tough. Yeah. So, so... Uh, I don't know if we've mentioned this, but we keep getting these hints that all of these scenes are actually happening at the same time. But one of them is that Coyle's on the phone with someone uh, who is apparently telling him that the woman who was among Hookwolf's chosen is dead from Shatterbird's attack and that she was a Coyle plant. Um, yeah, he's, the dude's everywhere. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, yeah. So uh, 
so this she tells him that hey we're all going to be dead soon or she tells him hey i'm pretty sure that i'm going to be dead soon um and this is actually really like uh kinetic and and, and propulsive scene because coil uh rapidly plays 20 questions basically to find out what's going on he's like okay who dies just dinah or 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 me and it's like okay well everyone present in the compound but not in the whole city and should we try to leave or should we fight back immediately okay neither of those work um and then you see coil suddenly knows that it's crawler because presumably he used one fork to move away from dinah and go recon or something um and and that's interesting so we see from inside Dinah's head that the numbers change whenever coil exerts his power which is obviously uh useful information to know and to yeah. understand I, I i agree with you so much that it's so cool to see how her power works and i think it's really cool to see how coil's power works from the outside mm-hmm. um we see it's not like how taylor dreamed it at all which we kind of knew but i love just this idea that he suddenly knows something <laughs> like without yeah. even skipping a beat. Um, I, I'm not sure how he figured out that crawler was the one that was coming. I'm not sure how exactly he did that, but he's coil. He knows shit. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he could have, he could have, I mean, at, at the very worst, he could have just like sprinted outside. <laughs> yeah, I guess I that's know. true. Yeah. The, the, the weirdest part for me with this is that like, if it wasn't, if the stuff that was happening to Dinah throughout this chapter wasn't so like horrifying there's almost this like funny tone to it and like the like how he interacts with her and how like he cuts her off kind of as she's because she always explains things out to the the largest decimal point and he always kind of just cuts her off and there's like maybe i'm just desperately grasping grasping for anything that's not depressing at this point but (laughs) i mean there's this this kind of funny tone or, or livelier tone to this that admits this we're all going to die moment, which is, I find very interesting. Yeah, no, I, I actually agree that there's this macabre humor. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit and, and I don't think I'm going to read this whole quote, but at one point, um, she, she, uh, Coyle says like, okay, what happens if we give him Noel? And she says, Oh, uh, 81% chance that we survive the next hour. And Coyle's like, Oh good. And then she's, and then she like, thinks and she like kind of uses her power to to poke at it more and she's like six percent chance we survive the next five hours and uh i mean that's definitely (laughs) supposed to be a comedic beat yeah that's really funny it is i mean like it's funny in the oh my god this is terrifying kind of way but yeah i think i think macabre is the the perfect way to describe it it works very well so um yeah to, to rewind a little bit we learn i think we may know some of this about uh, about crawler at this point but basically he he actually wants to be hurt because he regenerates so well that it doesn't matter and then he becomes immune to whatever it is that hurt him um and and coil points out that he's probably seeking someone who can harm him and the only individuals on this side who could harm him would be sundancer or noel um, and we still don't know what's up with noel by the way we just we keep getting more of these little tiny morsels of horror tone and one thing I love about this chapter is even in the chapter where the horrifying Slaughterhouse Nine are are moving in for the kill, Noel is literally still kept in darkness. <laughs> yeah, if it's like whatever this is over here is so bad that you can't even see it. You're absolutely right. I love I love that that 
how that plays off each other as we move through the chapter. It's really great. And I love how we're getting little tidbits of information, but you're right. Nothing concrete. We still know basically nothing about her. Yeah. So I'm, I'm skipping around too much, but um, I'll I'll just pick back up um, that uh, it, it turns out that Dinah can do even more than the typical use of her power, uh, which is that she can pick a particular future that she knows is a good future and then look directly at that future to find out what happened, but it hurts her and drains her. Um, so Coil forces her to do this, even though it like causes her incredible suffering and she like collapses and practically has a seizure. And it, it turns out that the answer was to go hide in Noelle's uh, vault. Yeah, this is really hard to read, um, especially Coil's like how like cavalier he is to the whole thing, because like they're they're like you're gonna kill her, and he's like no she can't die. It just really 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 hurts yeah okay thanks that's that thank you that makes me feel better um right the, the thing that this got me thinking about though um someone made a comment i think it was on uh, last week on the reddit that like there's pa- there's people like dinah like tattletale and to a different kind of extent alec that have like negative reinforcement the more they use the powers and there's some people that don't and i never really thought about that and why that is um and and, and like this got me thinking that like whenever you're using your power to like change the way things happen, um, like you're, you're, you're changing a series of events or, or doing something like the universe is kind of pushing back on you. Um, the problem with that theory is that I think coil should also be getting those kind of headaches and he doesn't, um, which either means like I'm totally wrong or his power is immune to that drawback somehow. And then that makes me think that maybe coils power is not naturally given, but, like a a vile cauldron type power. Um, Interesting. That just that's what got me thinking about that. Um, I, I have no idea, but that's just that's just me speculating again. Uh, so so you're saying that maybe powers that don't seem to have drawbacks are more likely to be uh, cauldron vile uh, powers. Yeah, to a, to okay. a, a certain okay. extent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, Th- there is one beat I wanted to touch on before we go on though, um, because okay. there's this moment where like after. Uh, after she looks into the future that has them going into the say to the vault coil, like picks her up and like her skin crawls at the contact of his body. And like, she, she talks about how like she didn't say anything about it because she's seen every possible outcome where she does say something and like how numbers shifted a little bit, even as she like flinched or like felt uncomfortable and like how horrible this is. Like this really, I mean, this really hit me. As I read this paragraph, like, first of all, the idea of having consequences for everything you do and you know how it affects everything you do and you know how your reaction and your choices and your moves affect everything around you, like constantly has you aware of all these things and how like overwhelming that must be. But then also like how powerless she is with Coil, like that she like she just she's disgusted by him, but there's nothing she can do. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to how to frame this thought in in that context. But like the idea that she has this ability to um, to look at a good future and then and then like look directly at it and and see what the details are. Um, that is like strictly much more powerful than what Coil can do. Yeah, because like. Coil at at best is like he's he's working toward this this plan 
you know, of, of running things basically by pruning like one path at a time. But Dinah, if she wanted to, like if she were motivated, she could basically, you know, it would hurt her a lot, but she could look at whatever future it was where she accomplished whatever she wanted to accomplish and just, and just do everything she could to execute that. Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, I guess one part of this that's so painful is that she's so powerless that she doesn't even really try to use her power uh, to benefit herself. Like, like she doesn't try to escape. She, and I think part of that is the, is the fact that he's got her addicted to drugs. Um, and he's probably thought this through fairly carefully, actually, but she's so broken that she doesn't even think about the fact that she can use her power to try to escape, for example. Yeah, but I mean, we've also seen that, like, when he uses his power, her numbers change. So even if she picked the line where she's 97% effective, whatever, um, yeah. he could use his power and that could, number could drop to 50 or 30 or something. So, yeah. I mean, she's, yeah, you're right. I mean, she's just screwed and it's so, it's so hard to read. And I think it, it, it it's always been clear, but in that particular paragraph, like watching her skin crawl to his touch and just not be able to do anything about it, just like hit me hard. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's super depressing. So, so they move into, um, Noel, uh, Noel's giant chamber and Noel is presumably in the dark on off to the side in, in the chamber. Um, and everyone else is huddled in the, on the other end of the chamber and, and they suggest that all the lights be turned off so that Noel can't see them anymore, even though she can still smell them. And uh, she's <laughs> having to deal with her hunger. Yeah, this is uh, this is really crazy. And I'm really I'm dying to know what the hell <laughs> this girl is. I really am. Um, I, I think at this point, I'm pretty confident it has something to do with Cauldron Group and the testing they've been doing. And this got me thinking down a line of thought where I'm going to randomly throw out a speculation that's probably totally wrong. But I wonder if she's like an attempt to like... Uh, cross like endbringer dna with that of just a regular cape like that would explain why leviathan's so drawn to her and why she's so powerful um and seemingly unstoppable but in a new and interesting kind of way um i have no idea on that but that's just something i think would be fun that's okay. one of the speculations that i don't have a lot of evidence to, to back up i just think it'd be interesting and fun yeah no i, I can see the connections that you're you're looking at there so um we get we get a little bit, bit from Sundancer, who her characterization has been sprinkled fairly evenly over over a lot of the story, actually. But she's she's apologizing to Dino for how she's being treated, um, and and obviously feels really bad about it, and feels some measure of responsibility because she's obviously working for Coil. But she justifies herself on the grounds that there's some kind of promise that the travelers have made to each other, and that and that also they're kind of all that the others have. And she can't go against them, even if she feels really bad about it. Yeah, she's basically the the tailor of the travelers. And I think that's like we, we've been kind of seeing that over and over again. Um, but she's seemingly the only one that gives a shit about what's happening to Dinah. But she feels powerless to act on it, uh, or at least not yet. Um, I'm assuming that the promise they're talking about was that they would do whatever they need to to help Noel. Um, but uh, wait, I'm interested to see what that actually is. I, I like this character a lot, um, and I like how we constantly kind of reflect uh, Taylor and her. Yeah, yeah. What's what's funny is that on on this read through, I'm I'm more primed to like question her 
her self justifications. Whereas in the past, I was like, oh, poor Sundancer. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, but we've 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 sort of hammered home this idea of like people trying to get away with bad things by justifying themselves to themselves that uh, I'm I'm seeing it everywhere now. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've broken ourselves. Yeah, it's uh, it's affecting my personal life. <laughs> so so Crawler tries to break his way into the vault while Trickster is talking Noel down. Ah, uh, this is so freaky. I love it so much. The tension here, like you have the, this giant pounding from the mm-hmm. outside, and then you have this arguably scarier monster on the inside, like quietly talking about how hungry she is and that she can smell people in the room, and they're all just sitting there and they have nowhere to go. This is wonderful. Yeah. And we didn't mention that before Dinah had said that there's still basically a 10% chance that they all die if they go into the vault. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so they get through it. Uh, ca- uh, Crawler leaves eventually and Coil sends for Dinah's candy. And then uh, once she's in her room, she makes one final use of her power to see that there's now a 31% chance that she will actually get to go home someday. Yeah, if you want to know like how much of a, a messed up mental state that this week's section got me, um, this moment, like she has a thirty-one percent chance of ever getting home, um, which is like the only moment in this entire section where any sort of positive hope is. Um, like it, her, it went four percent, right? Like four mm-hmm. percent improvement. It's still a very low percentage. It's still two thirds of the time she ends up trapped by coil forever. Um, the rest of her life but like i grabbed onto that four percent hope and like held onto it for dear life because i was just like searching for hope in the mixed all this terribleness um and that's that's the state of mind i was in while reading this it was really really rough yeah i mean this is interesting to me because obviously i mean i'm i'm super enjoying this this reread but there's there's just no way that something can affect you the same way on the second time as it did the first time and Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that it did affect me a lot the first time, but it's so distant that I don't think I would have thought about it unless you were here to point it out. Um, I think that may be something that people appreciate from this podcast, actually, is kind of the opportunity to say, like, oh, yeah, that that was really impactful. So, yeah, well, I, it, this this chapter definitely was. Yeah. And, and that just just because this kind of draws my attention to what you said a, a few minutes ago about Dinah's power and how it interacts with Coil's power, like she could she could actually make an escape attempt and be like, oh, yes, there's a 99 percent chance that this plan will work. And she she escapes and then and then Coil sees her escape and is like, well, cancel this reality. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that's 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 like, the, yeah, a very concise explanation for why that doesn't work oh it's sad poor dinah taylor save her now yes so finally not finally actually second to last we get to cherish and alec uh i like how this one starts so this is a character who we don't know anything about we don't know who it is we don't know what's going on really we're actually kind of confused and it's a it's a cold open where this um this girl is dancing in the rain, listening to music and a law enforcement type dude, uh, tells her that there's a curfew and asks her to get in his Jeep. And, uh, he spends some time on the phone talking about something about fires downtown, which is obviously Brent's car. Mm-hmm. And he eventually gets in. Um, and he seems really nice and fatherly and we really don't want him to die horribly. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mentioned on Twitter that there's something really uh, Whedon-esque about how this opens, because we, yeah, we have this innocent-looking girl walking alone on the dangerous streets. We know how dangerous Brockton Bay is. She's like casually listening to music. I think the natural reaction is to be worried for her safety, but then we do this quick role reversal. We're just kidding. She's actually the dangerous one. It was the guy that was the threat all along. Um, that's literally how Buffy the Vampire Slayer starts. <laughs> but um, So that's what I mean by Whedon-esque. But yeah, I, I really like this. This was a very cool way of doing this. Um, I, Cherish is a very fascinating character, and being in her head is very disturbing. Yes. So she hits him with mortal terror and then apathy to make him compliant which may sound familiar to you at this point. Yep. Um, and then she drives the Jeep to a checkpoint, at which point she amps up everyone's paranoia and fear and then leaves the law enforcement dudes to kill each other, which presumably they do. Yeah, I, I, emotional manipulation, man. Like, we keep <laughs> we keep harping on, like, how powerful this is. Um, and I like there's this... Again, Wildbo sets stuff up so well because... This is basically a showcase for how effective this power is. We see what she can easily do with these guards, um, and, and we see how creepy and terrible it is. And, and I, I really like that detail that she reads emotions as, like, she sees it as music, because it just kind of makes it even more creepier. That, like, it's, like, makes her, like, sing, or, or like, she reacts to it as if it's musical, um, to people's fear and terror and uh, all the... Uh, it creeps me out. Yeah, it's very inhuman. And and I mean, you, you, we're, we're going to see a bit of this in a second, but it kind of reminds you a bit of um, how when, when your power has to do with controlling people's bodies and or minds and or emotions, it kind of makes you become detached, which is something we see yeah. from the whole uh, Vasilev, is that it? Vasily? I don't remember how to say it. Family anyway, the Heartbreaker family. Yeah, you know the thing that like part of me wishes Gallant hadn't have died so early mm-hmm. because like he's the only other character outside this family that we know like deals in emotion and he was a good guy and I would have liked to have seen how the the good emotional manipulation versus the bad kind of played off each other um and how how like how you use this ability to affect people's emotions for good versus how these people use it terribly. Um, mm-hmm. I would like to see more of that. So that's that's a shame that we lost him so early. But maybe there's another good emotional person. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like a risky thing because it's one of those things where where it's 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 a power that does not lend itself well to being a superhero almost. Cause yeah, yeah. People will get creeped out by it. Yeah. So so in her head, we're seeing that Brockton Bay is just a perfect playground for her because everyone's emotions are so raw and therefore easier to manipulate and uh, that she can seemingly feel everyone in the city. She has a really immense range, and she kind of keeps tabs on the particular ones, which we are given to understand are the uh, the, the recruits for the Slaughterhouse-Nine. And we have the buried girl, the arrogant geek, the dog lover, the daydreamer, the warlord, the scaredy cat, the broken assassin, and the crusader. Ding, 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 Scott. Let's play Pick Who Is What. Okay, um, I think I'm going to probably need your help on some of these because some, right. some of them are easy. So I think the, the buried girl is Noelle because uh, she's literally underground. <laughs> um, uh, the arrogant geek, I think, is Arms Master. Um, I think that fits. I, yeah. Dog lover is, is very clearly Rachel. Daydreamer, I guess, 
is uh, L, I guess we're saying. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So the the warlord is where we get into toughness for me. Um, yeah. Uh, Scaredy Cat, I think, is supposed to be Amy. Um, Broken Assassin is Oni Lee. So it's Warlord and Crusader that I'm not sure on. Because um, yeah. one of them's Alec and one of them's Hookwolf. And I, yeah. I can't remember where we landed when we were discussing this before. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I think that it's it's totally fair to have a to have your own idea of it. I think what I like where I came down was I was like, I think Alec is the warlord because he's a he's an overlord. Like Lord is practically his name. Um, and 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 Hook Wolf sees himself as a crusader for something, even yeah. though what he's a crusader for is as abhorrent. I think you could make an argument in the opposite direction, but that's just kind of what feels convincing to me i think that makes the most sense if you guys listening have different interpretations of this we'd love to hear it um i kind of like how it's never that loops never closed um yeah. it's just like a fun little thing you can try to figure out like before i knew who the final uh person of the, the arc was i kind of tried to figure it out from these um i did not get it um but it, it, it's really interesting i like it a lot yeah yeah and i mean and, and you can see kind of like she's this part of her power is she's kind of summarizing these people as a as a whole with this label because she can feel them so well yeah and I, I, yeah and like from a, such a great distance like across the city it's like incredible mm-hmm. yeah so uh she arrives at the location of her pick and she orders the mercs out front to kill themselves which they do although it takes a while and is kind of horrible to watch um and then inside is Alec, her brother, which, I mean, this is all played as, as, as a surprise the first time you're reading it because you don't know who she is, really. And, and so when Alec recognizes her, that's finally when you kind of get who she is, um, I believe. I believe that's how things unfold. Yeah, I mean, I, as soon as I saw the emotional powers, I knew she was going to be connected to Alec in that Alec would probably be her recruit. But it did the loop of this is someone who related to her didn't close until this moment for me. So, yeah, this was a reveal. Yeah, I don't remember what I thought, but but the way her power seems to be described seems very similar to how Heartbreaker's power was described to yeah. us in the past. Yeah, yeah. So so inside, she she tries to turn the people in the room against him, but he's already controlling them, so it doesn't work. Yeah, this is really casually fed to us, right? Um, huh. Alec is just controlling people now. Um, so whatever made him stop when he first got to Brockton Bay, um, he fell off the wagon when he did yeah. Sophia. And he's just doing it all the time now. And it makes you wonder, do you think that if the rest of the undersiders are aware of this and how they would react to it if they were aware of this? Um, just very. Inf- and I like how it's given casually here, because, of course, from the perspective of, of Cherish, it's not a big deal to her. Um, but it's, yeah. it's really interesting information. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it seems like it would be really hard for him to single handedly hold the territory with his making people drop things power. Yeah, I mean, um, that's fair. But yeah. He's still doing terrible things. Right. I don't like yeah, it. Not, not to forgive it, just to say, yeah, yeah. just to say like it from his perspective, he's like, well, what else am I supposed to do? So they're basically at a stalemate because their powers sort of don't, they're sort of semi immune to each other's powers in different ways. And part of that is just the nature of the powers, I think. And part of it is because they've actually spent a lot of time practicing on each other. And so they're just sort of inured. Uh, so she's, it turns out that she was, frustrated that her father never made a push for real control um and that they're you know basically my interpretation is that there are 10 or so cape kids of of heartbreaker with three of them able to um control people one way or another uh four if you count alec 
Uh, but that even with all this power, Heartbreaker just wanted to go kidnap a movie star to add to his harem. And this basically resulted in in the heart the heartbreaking the heartbroken um, <laughs> uh, losing so many uh, people that are basically losing so much control that they threw away their shot at Empire. Um, so part of the reason she's joined the nine is uh, that after she left, two of her brothers are trying to come after her to bring her back, and she's kind of in it for the protection. And in order to get in, apparently she took out Hatchet Face. Who is a power nullifier um, because her range exceeds the range of his nullification field. Yeah. Um, I, so, Matt, I love this back and forth, like sibling argument that happens. Um, like, <laughs> it, it's like it, it's kind of this this sibling spat that's going on. But Alex, three guards are just standing there the whole time. Yeah. And like, we know that they're fully aware of what's going on. Um, we know that they're conscious and they and they feel emotions, but they can't do anything. So they're both like physically unable to move their body. Also, at the same time, Cherish is like emotionally assaulting them with terrible emotions to try to control them. And they're just having to sit there and take all this um, and they can't do anything about it. It's right. like it's so horrifying. Yeah. At, at, at worst, they're, they're like standing there sweating and shaking yeah. while... While these two siblings just natter back and forth. It's funny because I mentioned this on Twitter and someone responded with, well, if Alec wasn't controlling them, they would have just committed suicide. <laughs> it's like that's like putting a silver lining on a fucking hurricane. That's yeah. like, it's like, OK, yeah, I mean, you're right. But Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like uh, we're assuming that they actually walk away from this. And they're like minds haven't melted. <laughs> so. uh so he he kind of reveals the he can probably hijack her body actually, but then she reveals that she has a bomb on her person that she has to keep resetting, uh, in order to not blow her up and everyone around her. Yeah, this is really interesting character development. Um, I kind of wonder what like this bomb is specifically meant to stop, and part of me thinks it it may be designed to just to counter Alec himself. Um. It seems like super risky and she's super casual about it. Um, like her phone literally dies. The only way to stop herself from blowing up dies. And she's just like, that's inconvenient. I guess I'll go do something about that in a few minutes. And I guess yeah, it, just, really, it gets you into yeah. her character and her point of view. Yeah, she reminds you of Alec in a, in a very different way. And yeah. just like detachment and, and affectlessness. Um which which actually segues nicely into the fact that when she tells Alec that she's nominating him for the nine um, and it's for such a petty reason, it's like, well, you left and it made my life worse. So now I'm going to ruin your life. And, and and Alec and Alec's reaction is like you, you can kind of imagine. I don't know. For some reason, I find it very amusing to imagine him being like, oh, man. You really screwed me over here, sis. <laughs> and like, actually, for Alec, this is like the equivalent of like screaming and throwing things. Yeah. Because like, he's actually having an emotional reaction that he's showing, um, which means he's freaked out. Um, yeah, that, it's these two. It's these two emotionally detached people having an argument. So like, you're right. You're absolutely right. And it's really good. I, I like that every single person has their own personal reasons for nominating someone. And only like half of them are because we think this guy would actually make a good spot on our team. Um, it's just yeah. mostly to fuck with people. Right. Um, I, I really liked that a lot. I, yeah. I, I was a little surprised that Alec, like his, his reaction to the offer is so like immediate and like, no, I don't want to do this. Um, I, 
when I originally predicted that this entire Slaughterhouse Nine was there to recruit him, um, which I got a little wrong, but um, I didn't expect him to ever actually join. But I expected like it to be somewhat of a temptation for him. And he doesn't even like take a beat to consider it. And and you're right, he's freaked out by the idea of it. So I think I'm just kind of selling Alec short again that that uh, he's not as bad as sometimes he's perceived, um, and that even he has a line, and and this is beyond it. Yeah, I think he he fairly explicitly tells us like, sis, you're in over your head here. These people are monsters. Yeah. And and he knows he knows that he's not like that. He's not that caliber of of creature or whatever is wrong with him. Um, or at least he, at least that's what he wants to believe, I guess. Um, yeah. So, so as she leaves, Cherish thinks about how she's been very, very subtly making the other members of the nine addicted to her. Um, at least that's how I parse what she's, what she's describing and yeah. that soon they'll be wrapped around her finger. Yeah, this is a, a really super stable group of people that I definitely want to join and hang out with. It's yeah. really great. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that, uh, you know, if they lived long enough, they would all die of like heart disease from this chronic stress of being around each other. <laughs> all right, now we we end with everyone's favorite Slaughterhouse Nine member. Okay, so this is I've been dreading this conversation since we started. <laughs> I really have. Um, okay. I think this is one of the most tragic and yet beautiful things I've read. Um, like we, we, we talk up wild bows writing a lot in this podcast and obviously we're big fans or we wouldn't be talking about it for two hours and 15 minutes every week. Um, but this chapter, the, the construction, I'm not just talking about the events of the chapter, but the writing itself, the order of how things happen, how they're described, the tone, the pace, um, this this just beautifully crafted little mini vignette of a story is incredible. It's incredible. I love this chapter so much, and it breaks my heart, and it bummed me out, and it, it's so many different emotions, but it is near perfect. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go into it, and I'll talk about what I love as, <laughs> as we're going. All right. So, so panacea. Amy Dallin finds Dragon's letter that she had sent to Brandish um, in the New Wave household and immediately learns that her father is the supervillain Marquis, which, yes, everyone, I'm going by the pronunciation guide for the audiobook, which says Marquis. We looked it up in a dictionary, guys. We looked it up. A real dictionary. Th- thank you. There. Thank you. Moving on. <laughs> so so she, she takes this about as well as you would expect. Yeah. And like, I mean, especially based on what we know of her so far, um, this girl who's never known her family, who's always felt kind of like an outsider, always felt that on some level there was something wrong with her. Um, she, gifted, you know, with this great power to help people, but has always had this suspicion that there was like this darkness behind it. Um, and so every time she was too tired to help someone, every time she was unable to help someone, every time she like just didn't want to do it, um, she like she just wondered if it's because of this thing that's wrong with her. And now like she's already at a low point and she reads this and it's basically her worst nightmare coming true um, all at once that that, yes, she is uh, the, the, the offspring of a monster and therefore could be a monster herself. 
And it's God, it's so hard. Like we start off with a bang like that and I am already depressed. Yeah. And this is before we even move into like how horrible her home life is now. Yeah. Um, because, you know, we, we're showing Lori Girl and Brandish are leaving to deal with the howling, which is obviously the first chapter, which is a nice little circle there. Um, and they're leaving her to look after Mark, a.k.a. Flashbang. Um, and they're being really cold to her, especially Brandish. Glory Girl is being just more like uncomprehending about things. And we don't really realize why at this point. Um, it, but basically, he's he's injured. He's brain damaged um, in a way that makes him kind of lose his his uh, his physical skills. He can't really control his body very well or, or do basic things. Um, but he still has his mind and panacea can't or won't help him. And it's and it's very gradually doled out to us exactly what's going on with that. Um, but but regardless, Amy insists that she shouldn't heal him shouldn't heal his brain, that it's a line that she shouldn't cross and they don't understand. And it's kind of tearing the family apart. And we don't really understand either at this point. Not quite. Yeah, I, I agree. And again, it goes into how brilliant this chapter is because my initial reaction was just heal him. And then the more you're with Amy, the more you understand like how terrified of her power she is and how much she kind of hates her power. Um, and, and she can't explain why to anyone else. Um, let alone like fully admit it to herself. And the only reason we even kind of get it is because we're inside her brain and that's it. Yeah. And like, like, oh man, that, this yeah. is so depressing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm trying not to be, I'm trying not to be leading here, but I think this chapter highlights what, what I'm about to say anyway, which is like, it's, it's kind of misleading to even refer to her as a healer. Um, like, yeah. Like if if you were to describe her power, you wouldn't necessarily say, "Oh, she's a healer." Like, like she can heal, <laughs> <laughs> but she can do. I mean, we don't even know what she, what else she can do. Uh-huh. Yeah, which I mean, Bonesaw basically just says this outright. She's like, "Oh no, you can do, you can do, you can do all this other stuff that that has nothing to do with." you know, bringing a person's body back into its nominal physical parameters. Yep. So, um, so she, she decides that she is going to heal Mark because she just can't take it anymore, even though it breaks her rules. But then immediately afterwards, she's going to just leave the family. She's just going to pack a bag and walk out the door and leave. Um, so having made this decision, knowing she's going to have to work herself up to it, but she's made the decision, she comes back into the room and there's a girl there looking about five years younger than Amy, who we have to consider she's like 16 or something. And uh, Mark knows who this is. And there's this extremely sad image of him struggling to stand, but he can't. Yeah. And we start off the chapter in just kind of this standard character drama where we're dealing with panacea and her her internal conflict but then with this moment it it morphs into full-on horror and that's kind of where we are for the rest of the chapter and this is really where i thought the horror metaphor really landed the most um and i i love it (laughs) i love it so much i love how bonesaw relates to uh amy i love how her pushing her to reveal stuff about herself um like 
presents this metaphor to us throughout the chapter, um, I, I, it's just so well done. Like, I, I'm, I'm just going to be gushing about this chapter throughout it all because it's just so well done. It's so well executed. Yeah, that's OK with me. So she noticed it. So, so I, I, the description, I'm just going to point out the description of, of Bonesaw is, is fantastic that she's just like in this bloodstained apron and has like perfectly quaffed ringlets. But everything else about her is like dirty and bloodstained uh, and has like tons of surgical tools at her belt. Um, and then behind Amy is Hatchet Face. Um, but then Hatchet Face teleports to get ahead of her when she tries to run. And while the first hatchet face dissolves in a way that we've seen elsewhere. And we realize that it's not hatchet face, it's hack job, uh, which is Oni Lee and hatchet face mashed together. I just love Bonesaw's creative names. Oh, do you, Matt? Do you love them? Yeah, they're so delightful. And, and she's, I mean, she's really on a whole nother level, right? And, and that's what we were talking about, that we've been mentally prepping for this moment <laughs> throughout the, yeah. the last seven chapters um, to, to, get to this level of horror and scariness. And I, I love that this uses like that little girls are scary imagery. Um, like, uh-huh. because Bonesaw isn't just this disgusting, horrible monster who can create other disgusting, horrible monsters. She's a cute little girl, disgusting, horrible monster who creates other little monsters. It's like if one of the twins from the shining woke up one morning and then decided to turn into a fucked up Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, it, it's so visceral. Um, I love it. Uh, I'm terrified by it, but I yeah. love it. Uh, she, and, 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 and she, and she fiercely chastises people for swearing on top of all that. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, again, we've mentioned this before, but the nine are largely going after kindred spirits or at least people who they see as being kindred spirits. So usually this horrifies the person they pick. Um, because it's implying that the person is a monster and this is exactly not what Panacea needs right at this moment is to have someone else who works with quote unquote meat show up and tell her that we're the same. Yeah, I love this. I n- it never occurred to me to have like a tinker that works with biology, um, like uh, instead of a tinker that works with technology. And it, it's mm-hmm. so interesting. And yeah. I, it's like, it's, it's these things like, of course, it makes sense, but it's something that would have never occurred to me. Um, and I just love that it occurred to Wildbow. This is really interesting and horrifying, of course, um, but I, I like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I hope he never writes an entire web serial where every character is Bonesaw. I feel like you're hinting something that I don't understand. I don't, gonna, I don't appreciate it, Matt. Just going to let that pass. <laughs> It's about twig. Um, oh, the stick one. I got it. Yeah. Um, so little vignette uh, aside where Bonesaw describes the origin of murder rat was one of those things where your brain just whelps right into a whole nother tonal neighborhood relative to the prior arcs in particular. Yeah, uh, that that was awful. Oh, my God. Like, wasn't it that uh, someone hired her to to kill uh the i forget mouse protector mouse protector yeah (laughs) ravager ravager hired her to kill what what is essentially a mickey mouse themed cape (laughs) she didn't she didn't kill she just mashed her together physically with the one who asked her to kill her into a horrifying like rodent person oh my god (laughs) (laughs) Uh. yeah i mean it's 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 
yeah, it's it's really a very different thing that we're introducing in the story now. Yeah, no, and I is. love that I it mean, works. Yeah, it, it it does work. It works so well. It, like that's the amazing part about this is is it really it feels like a natural extension of the mm-hmm. things we've seen in the story, but it still elevates it to a whole nother level. Um, it, it never feels like we're we're jumping this just for the sake of story. It makes sense within the story, but Jesus Christ, it's, <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. So yeah, Bonesaw brings in some of her other creations, and uh, she elaborates that she would love to work with Panacea because they could make even cooler monstrosities together. And Amy says she's not up for it, and Bonesaw says, well, we can work on that. Uh, and a bit later on in the chapter, she elaborates, like, hey, we can make one super person out of 100 capes and stop an inbringer. And uh, man, that's really running with this this theme of like the ends justifying the means and, and stuff like that that we've talked about before. Where Yeah, it's almost as if it's one of the main unifying themes of the entire novel. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's but, probably a coincidence. But again, the reason this works is because on the macro level, um, that is a main unifying theme. But on the micro level, it works here, too, because she, Amy is the scared 16 year old girl. Um, who's always feared what she really is and always felt unwelcome in her home, who's never really had a family. And um, and and she's never felt like she could be tr- honest with her family about what she is or what she feels like she is. And then she's got this person who basically says, I want you to be my sister. Um, I, I am fully embracing what you are, even though you're scared of it. Um, and, and you can see that there's a part of her that would maybe find this appealing on some level. Um, certainly as we get into the points where she uh, breaks her <laughs> over these next few few uh, paragraphs. But like it, it just it's just like she's appealing to her on this level that from Amy's perspective on some level could be very attractive. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's a great thing to point out that this person is literally asking her to be like her sister. Yeah, which is which is something she's extremely vulnerable to in this moment where she's, she's, she feels like she's lost or, or is losing her, her other sister. Um, so yeah, uh, bones again, like you just mentioned, she's, she now she's like, okay, that's fine. I'll just break you because Bonesaw claims to be Jack's protege. Um, and hearkening back to what he said about finding the, you know, the keystone, uh, she wants to find Amy's breaking points the way Jack does. And, uh, so first she has murder rat attack her and, and makes Amy take her apart physically, like kind of from the inside um, on threat of injury to herself and Mark if she if she fails. And then after she does this, she has Pagoda attack with the same threat, basically. And because Pagoda regenerates, um, Amy, basically, it's either kill him or or nothing else will work. So she. I think she sort of accidentally kills him, but um, she she definitely definitely kills him. Yeah. Um, so there's there's in in the midst of all this, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read the full quote, um, but there's uh, Bonesaw basically demonstrates that she, un- she she actually seems to understand where powers come from better than like anyone in the whole story, and it's because she's like captured people and hooked them up to computers and monitored them while inducing the kinds of stress that cause trigger events. Um, so like she understands Panacea's power maybe better than Panacea does. And, and maybe yeah. even understands the idea of powers better than, than anyone else. I mean, that certainly anyone else that we've seen, I think. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of information here, and I don't think we have time to go into all of it yet, just yet, but I'm sure this is going to come up again. The thing that really stood out to me was um, the idea that uh, powers being given to people who have trigger events is like a mistake. Um, I think this works for cool story reasons, but I think it also works metaphorically as the powers being like a response to trauma. Um, these things aren't supposed to happen and in like a perfect world, they wouldn't happen, but this isn't a perfect world. This is a world where people treat each other like shit and force each other in these extreme, extreme emotional situations that result in these mistakes that give people superpowers. And I, I, I love that thematic imagery. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in the final step to break Amy, uh, Bonesaw has one of her little spider robots jump on Mark and inject acid into his brain. And now Panacea has to heal his brain or he'll just die. So she heals the injury and then she heals him completely. And almost immediately he springs into action, fighting off Bonesaw's creations. Yeah, and this was kind of very surprising to me because I always thought her rationale for not healing brains was specific to the complicated nature of the human mind and how getting in there and messing with it could potentially be dangerous. But it's very clear here that it, that's not the case at all, that she very easily does this. It's very simple for her to go in and just put his brain back to normal. Yeah. Um, and so, so the real reason is something much deeper, much more complicated and ingrained in her persona. And we're going to we're going to see that here in a few minutes. But uh, that was that was a very interesting reveal for me. It really got me thinking. And then it's like everything lands in in the final moments of the chapter. And you're like. Oh, I get it now. This is incredible. Yeah, right. It's it's so it's so complex and it's and it harkens back to the first couple of times we saw this character and and a lot of her yeah. character decisions that she's made. We're not there quite yet though. So Bonesaw leaves, you know, Mark's it it would be flattering to Mark to say that he scared her off. I think she just left because her point was made. Yeah, um, she broke her and didn't need to be around anymore. Right. Uh so uh, and then Mark pretty unhesitatingly just euthanizes uh, Murder Rat slash Mouse Protector. Yeah, I, I appreciated this moment at least, though. I, I don't think there's a lot you could do for poor Mouse Protector at this point, yeah. um, especially like knowing that she was conscious throughout the whole thing. Right. Uh, that's. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I just thought the, the, the it was almost a perfect capstone to this scene where this hero like blows a person's chest apart and blood sprays everywhere, and it's. It's like that's the that was the hero taking yeah, action. Yeah, I guess it was a rather violent way of <laughs> of euthanizing someone. Yeah. So uh, so, Panacea pretends to go to the other room to rest, but actually she just packs a bag and leaves, and um, she's you know hiking through this this dangerous city now, and Victoria catches her pretty quickly because she's Victoria, um, <laughs> and. Amy still refuses to talk about why she hadn't healed Mark before. Um, and she tries her best to rebuff her sister and, and just get her to leave her alone. And, and she, above all, not to touch her. Uh, and Victoria just kind of bowls through all of her, her protestations and finally gives her a hug. Um, and Amy uses her power somewhere between conscious and unconscious Lee and uh, changes something in Victoria and what she did is she made Victoria reciprocate her romantic feelings. And this is this is where everything lands. And this is when it 
becomes a, a, basically a masterpiece for me because this last piece of this puzzle that is Amy clicks into place and suddenly we see everything. And, you know, I, I didn't see this coming. I really didn't. Um, and, and so suddenly, like, we realize that Amy, Amy is gay and she's been dealing with this her entire life. And I think her fear of, of who she is and her fear of her powers works metaphorically with this. But I think they work independently as well. Like, she can both be terrified of who she is as a, as a person from her sexual orientation and how um, that deals with the fact that she's romantically interested in who, what is ostensibly her sister um, while also being afraid of her powers. I think the, the, the great thing about metaphor is that it can be both things and uh -huh. the same thing at the same time. Um, it can One can represent the other while still being its own thing. And I think yeah. that's what, what happens here is is that her her fear of her powers is a metaphor for her fear of being true to herself and who she is but also it's just a, a plain fear of her powers from her past and i just matt i love this it's so it's so complicated it's so deep it's so like but clearly revealed to you in that moment like it's like everything was leading up to it it's so good yeah my favorite line about this whole chapter almost i think is is where she, I, I didn't i didn't pull it out but it's it's how it's described when she actually does the act of of modifying victoria's mind because it's it's not it's not really a conscious choice but it's it's also not like an involuntary reflex it's 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 like she it's something that she wants to do so badly and she's wanted for so long that even though she knows it's the wrong thing, she can't stop herself. Yeah. And, uh, and, and she really tried hard to say, no, no, please leave, leave me alone. Don't touch me. And, and she just was at her absolute last thread. And, um, and I think that's realistic is that uh, that just feels very psychologically realistic to me. And it's hard to actually hold it against her because she really did give Victoria quite a bit of, pushback yeah no absolutely and man i mean I, I i do agree i love the idea that it's both conscious and unconscious and i love the idea that um it's like the reason why she set up these rules for herself is because this is a line she never wanted to cross and she was terrified that by even even just healing a person's mind would open herself up to being able to do this easier and easier. And we see yeah. that she was kind of right that the, her first reaction to that, her first after crossing that line is to doing the thing that she wanted to do for so long, but never let herself do. And I mean, it, it's God, it's so sad. Like she's just broken now. Like yeah. bone saw broke her. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, she, she was right all along also, like, like yeah. she, she was right to not, you know, and no one listened to her. And even you as the reader, like you just, like you said, you're like, come on, what, what's the big deal? Just heal his brain. You can heal yeah. his brain. Yeah. And, uh, like on, only after it's too late, do we understand that she was right, which I, is probably a metaphor for everything in human life. Yeah. But I love, <laughs> I love how like it works on so many levels and that's, I was trying to articulate that and I don't know if I did a good job, but I love how you can yeah. look at this as an entire metaphor for her coming to terms with her sexuality. Yeah, um, yeah. But you can also look at it independently as just dealing with her powers. And it, it, like, it can work on both levels. And it does work on both levels. And that's good writing. And that's why I think this works so well. Yeah. No, that's... I mean, I, I don't know how Wildo sits down and, and thinks these things up, but 
but there is no more perfect way of enmeshing the character's personal situation with the dynamics and complexities of the power that that person gets. Yeah. Um, this may be the best example of that in the story. At least as far as I've seen, I absolutely yeah. think it is. I love yeah. this. So even after all this, even after she does it, she immediately begs to be allowed to reverse it. But Victoria is too disgusted by it and by all the implications of it. And she leaves after verbally savaging her sister. Yep. And that's, I, that's the end of Amy, um, at least for now. I, you know, I, I still don't think Amy would ever join the Slaughterhouse Nine. Um, even as broken as she is in this moment, I don't, I don't think that's something she could bring herself to do. Um, I think it's a, a bridge too far. But I think as a human being, Amy is, is now broken. And I don't know how she's going to be able to get over this ever. Yeah. All right, on that cheerful note. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this was this is a fantastic arc, and uh, it's it's once again. I mean, it reminds me of the Ward's arc, where I mean, on on the um, on the superficial level, that it's taking a series of vignettes from the perspectives of different characters who we haven't necessarily got to spend much time with yet. Um, but it's it's also shifting the tone of the story in a, in a horror direction. Um, it's introducing uh, what I think we can safely assume are going to be villains uh for the upcoming however long um yeah and i think to to tie it back to our our protagonist i think this kind of shows the end of a certain path um the slaughterhouse nine are the end of a, a certain set of decisions that turns you a certain way and we both with, with the fact that we're seeing them recruiting people we get to both see the beginning of the path and the end of the path all mm -hmm. at once. And we get to see how this relates to Taylor and how it relates to what Taylor is, the decisions Taylor's making and, and what Taylor's doing. Um, I, I do find it very interesting that Taylor wasn't recruited. I think as a writer, it, it would kind of be um, like something you want to do is make one of your protagonists the recruit. But I almost like it better that that was not the case because I think that allows Taylor to view this from an external perspective. And uh, I think she can get growth from this. Um, but I, I, you're right. I, I love, I love everything in this arc. I love how, it, how these, all these little mini stories matter on their own, but they matter in relation to the entire story. They matter in relation to our protagonist. It's, it's so good. Yeah. I, I, I will say that I was like, just assuming that Taylor, I was like, oh, of course, Taylor is going to be, the last arc or the, right. the last chapter. You it know, seems so obvious, right? That's how you do that. And then it's not that I was disappointed that she wasn't actually, it, it completely makes sense to, to do it, to do it, you know, differently than, than the obvious. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'll never criticize a writer for not doing the obvious thing. <laughs> right. So. Right. Yeah. All right, Scott. Well, um, I think that wraps up our beat by beat discussion. Would you like to uh, go into some speculations? I certainly would. Um, we're going to run over, but that's OK. That's okay. <laughs> um, so I just want to, to fill in on some of the old ones. Um, I did say the Slaughterhouse Nine were in Brockton Bay to recruit their ninth member and that Alec would be considered for the spot. That was technically correct, although when I made the prediction, I was thinking just Alec. Um, but 
I'll, I'll give myself it anyway. Yeah, I think I'm going <laughs> to. I think that you, the community will rule in your favor on this All one. Right. Um, and then also I was right about uh, the glasses around Shatterbird. Um, that was correct. And I'm proud of myself for that one. So good job, That's me. Excellent. Um, so the good new best. ones I'm going to make, I think we've already touched on these throughout, but I'm just going to recap them. I think Hookwolf is going to be uh, the one of the the recruits that ends up actually joining the slaughterhouse nine um i'm assuming that next arc will be the tests and and all that conflict that comes up but i think at the end of that it will be him um and then on my also my weird speculation about noel being the result of a cauldron experimentation to attempt to create an endbringer like person um again that's a out of left field one and i have no idea um i have very little evidence to back that up just weird thinking um, so we'll see. Did I make another one? I can't remember. I I don't. Uh, I think that I'm, was it. You may have made another one, but we'll we'll catch it. All right. We'll catch it. All right. So that's all I got uh, for this week. All right. Uh, well, yeah, that wraps up Arc Eleven Infestation in its entirety over the last two podcasts. Done. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions to this nightmare. As always, we appreciate your feedback and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. Yeah, you can reach us via email at uh, gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. Um, my personal Twitter Twitter is at scottdaily85, that's D-A-L-Y, and Matt's is at mordinamail. Um, please follow us. Uh, I've been trying to be more active on Twitter, uh, giving my thoughts on films I've seen. One of these is I'm going to get back to like writing film reviews. I haven't done that in a long time, but for now I'm going to tweet about them. So yeah, uh, go and follow us. Yeah. I, I live tweeted my, uh, weekend watching, uh, back to back watching, uh, 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 Batman versus Superman, uh, justice league. Um, wait, that is the justice league movie. Uh, uh suicide, <laughs> suicide squad and uh x-men apocalypse i can't believe you did that all in one weekend you are a superhero mm -hmm. well i'm i'm broken just like amy <laughs> um so <laughs> yeah so if you're not already subscribed to we've got worm we strongly recommend that you do so and never miss an episode you can find us on itunes stitcher youtube google play overcast and pretty much anywhere else in the world that you can listen to podcasts and as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing essays, film and TV criticism, and more, which I promise I'm going to start doing again soon, at dailyplanetfilms.com. We also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms, again, D-A-L-Y. Uh, thanks for your support. We've hit our, our next goal, and we're in the process of planning that worm fan art contest that we've been talking to you guys about for a while now. Yay. Make sure you stay tuned for more information on that in the coming weeks while we get that sorted out. Our next goal will be uh, the return of the Daily Planet Book Club, uh, which will be a monthly series where Matt and Scott tackle a book of the audience's choosing and discuss it. So check out the Patreon page for more info. Uh, a very special thanks to our new associate producer donor, Thinker6, and our new producer donors, Sammy R. and Jason R. We are continually awed uh, by the level of your generosity, and we thank you guys so much for your support. Uh, also, yeah. while you're over at Patreon, make sure you stop by Wildbo's page and toss some money there because he's the guy that makes this whole thing possible. Yeah, and as always, if you are one of those that can't spare any extra cash, we do completely understand there are still 
tons of ways to help us out. Um, you could share this podcast with your friends, um, people who have read Worm before, people who haven't read Worm before. I think we're trying to make this for both of those groups. Um, and as always, if you're listening via iTunes, if you could take a minute to rate and review our podcast, that would be really helpful. This week's spotlight review is from King Bob 12 who says, Matt and Scott are a tag team of in-depth speculation, writing savvy, and passion that is hard to beat. Hugely interactive with their audience, and also just perfectly on point with their examinations of Worm. If you've ever wanted to read Worm but were put off for whatever reasons, I have no idea why why that would be true, but whatever. Or have already read Worm and want to get some more amazing content, listen to these guys. Um, that's awesome because a lot of the points he hit in there are things we are specifically trying to do. So the fact that, that, that people are picking up on that, I think the audience interaction, I think, is really important for both of us. Um, so thank you so much, King Bob. You're awesome. Um, and thank you everyone else who has rated and reviewed us. We really appreciate it. Yes. And in case you were wondering if we're delighted to receive that kind of feedback, we are delighted to receive that. Kind yeah, of feedback. I am. I, it makes me so happy just reading it again. I've already read it several times, but just reading it again right then just put a smile on my face. Yeah, me too. Uh, so next week we jump into arc 12 plague. Uh, so Scott, what do you think the title for this arc means? Well, I, I think uh, since the majority of the back half of Arc 11 was a setup for the Slaughterhouse Nine, I suspect that the conflict will come to the forefront as their recruitment campaign uh, becomes like a, a plague on the city, like a plague on, on both your houses. Okay. Something. Yeah. Something. All right. All righty. Um, yeah, so, so uh, next, uh, this, this coming weekend, Scott and I, uh, along with a friend of the pod, Michael Grubb, are uh, going to be traveling to a remote undisclosed mountain location to uh, work on a project together. So the schedule may be a bit uh, messed up, but we are going to do our best regardless of that. Yeah, this um, is really exciting, guys, because I don't know if you know this, but Matt and I haven't seen each other <laughs> in, in a decade. That's correct. Um, we were friends in high school or college. Um, then we both graduated from college and have not seen each other in human flesh for a long time. Yeah. So, so we're uh, finally getting to do that. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, if you were under the apprehension that we're sitting in the same room doing this, well, then uh, that that's, means, that's, that's, that's incorrect. That means our video or our audio editing is spot on. Good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, we, we would love to record something when we're there in the same place, but the, the timing might not work out there. But, uh, we're we're going to try to record something. I don't know if it's going to be worm related or not. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to promise anything and then disappoint people. Um, but if it is worm related, it'll be a bonus type of thing. It will not be the normal episode uh, face to face, unfortunately, because we will not be ready for it at, the, at that point. But yeah, uh, we'll try to do something for sure. Yeah. All right. So um, I think that wraps everything up and we will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.